All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Marlon Wilson, and we have another great show for you today. Uh, today will not be a debate, but I do have Dr. Jason Loud, Dr. Marcus Ross, and we're going to be talking about some young earth creation. And he, the, the idea is that I want them to be able to answer a lot of you guys' questions out there. So if you're in the audience, I do encourage you to go ahead and start posting questions right now so we can get those questions in so Dr. Lyle and Dr. Ross can deal with your questions. Uh, before I bring these guys in, though, I do encourage you to make sure you subscribe to The Gospel Truth. Hit that subscribe button and that notification bell so you don't miss out on any shows or anything that has to do with The Gospel Truth. You want to miss out on anything, all right? Uh, if you don't know, all this content, or some of this content anyway, is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. So make sure you're flowing to those platforms and subscribing and following on those platforms as well. And as always, on those platforms, make sure you hit the notification bell so you don't miss out on any information that's being passed through those social media platforms. Also, if you're not aware, uh, all this gospel content is on podcasts, so iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. So make sure you are jumping on these pod on a podcast to subscribe and follow there as well, because we do upload new content frequently. All right. Uh, as always, I do have some some announcements here that I do want to make sure you guys are aware of. All right. Uh, come. Oh, sorry. Coming up next after this debate, this will be a debate that's on Sunday. Coming up this Sunday, I have a two-on-two -two debate. Jesus is Yahweh. That is going to be the subject of this two-on-two -two debate. So if you are not, uh, if you are not aware, uh, now you are aware. So won't you go ahead and subscribe and follow so to miss out on this debate. After that, I have another debate. This is going to be an eschatology debate, pre-wrath rapture. So make sure you are jumping on this one. If eschatology is your light, is if that is your cup of tea, so make sure that you are jumping on this one, all right, Because so you don't miss it. Then after that, I have a debate. I actually want to update this debate. Uh, this debate was actually supposed to take place against uh, the holy man, a uh, hope man, uh, the guy with the mic in his hand, and another individual, uh, Sahi Luke. But Luke is not going to be debating this debate. Instead, I have Matt Slick, who is going to be jumping in on this debate. So he will be jumping in. And I hope that you're looking forward to it. I'm a huge fan of Matt Slick. So uh, I'm always enjoying his debates. And then after that, I have another dual debate. A dual interview, should I say. I have Dr. Tom Book and Pastor Gabriel Hughes. They're going to be jumping on. We're going to talk about everything Calvinism, all right? These are fun segments that I like to do where the Calvinist position can sort of get, uh, can, can get uh, investigated or interrogated uh, stringently by the audience. So I look forward to these two individuals coming on the show. And then lastly, I am having a fundraiser for the gospel truth. If you are interested or if God puts it on your heart to, uh, to support the ministry and this fundraiser, we are looking to raise money to buy media equipment. And we want to put me, get media equipment. So when we go on the road and do things on the road, we have quality media equipment that can help us to do those things. All right. Uh, so if you are interested and God's put on your heart, you can look in the description of this video and click on the link. The fundraiser link and now to take you to the fundraiser page to raise some funds for this fundraiser all right for the media equipment all right all right so that said i am excited for this show because we have 
two of the leading voices in the Young Earth Creation position, and I'm excited. Uh, Dr. Jason Lau, as you know, is a Christian astrophysicist who, research, uh, who researches issues pertaining to science and the Christian faith. A popular speaker and author, Dr. Lau presents a rational defense for a literal uh, genesis showing how science confirms the history recorded in the Bible. Brought up in a Christian family at a young age, he received Christ as Lord. Since then, Lau has always desired to serve the Lord out of love and gratitude for salvation. And to spread the gospel message to all people. Dr. Lau double majored in physics and astronomy with a minor in mathematics at Ohio Wesleyan University. He then went on to obtain a master's degree and a PhD in astrophysics at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, there he used the Soho spacecraft to analyze the surface of the sun and made a new number of interesting discoveries, including the detection of giant sail boundaries. So that's Dr. Jason Lyle. You guys know he's been on us a couple times on the gospel truth. And so I'm happy to have Dr. Jason Lyle back. All right, so, but we have a newcomer to the gospel truth and his name is Dr. Marcus Ross. And he received his BS uh, bachelor of science in earth science and, and from uh, Pennsylvania State University. His MS, a master of science in Plant, plant, yeah. Paleontology, if I could get that out, paleontology from South Dakota School of Mines and Technology and his PhD in geosciences from the University of Rhode Island. He is an assistant professor of geology and biology chemistry department at the University uh, University Liberty University. That has changed. He is no longer uh, a practicing professor at, um, at Liberty University. I'll let him explain that a little bit more. Where he is also the assistant director of the Center of Creation Studies. Um, 2007, Ross was featured in a report of on creationism. Ross believes that the uh, Bible is a literal, true account of the creation of the universe and that the earth is at most 10,000 years old. This is in contrast to his previous position as reflected when he earned his PhD in geosciences from the University of Rhode Island with a dissertation about the abundance and spread of uh, Mossors, Moisors, I don't know how to pronounce that. Marine reptiles that, as he wrote, vanished at the end of the Cretaceous era about 65 million years ago, right? So that's no longer his position. <laughs> Just have to put that inference there. Uh, Ross been criticized by some of taking his academic route, this academic route, but Ross claims that it only affirmed his belief in the young earth creationism and has enabled him to find academic grounds upon which to base the argument for his scientific credentials. So I said a whole bunch in introducing these guys. So I'm gonna let these guys come on. Uh, how you guys doing? Really good. Doing well. Thank you so much, Marlon. Uh, no problem. Hey, did I mess up the uh, that pronunciation of that word? Was it Mosasaurs? Did I pronounce that Mosasaurs. right? Mosasaurs. Mosasaurs. Think of your favorite biblical patriarch. They are the Mosasaurs, oh. and they're marine Moses reptiles. So it was part of the Red Sea. They <laughs> okay. were not on either side of the water, but uh, you can think of it that way. They were big marine lizards, uh, and if anybody saw Jurassic World, uh, the, the hero at the end of Jurassic World is one of the Mosasaurs. And uh, there's, there's about 40 different types out there in the fossil record. And, and if I wouldn't, uh, if it's okay, uh, let me correct a little something that's probably up on that, uh, some of the Wikipedia information about me. Not the most okay. accurate. Um, okay. While I did study Mosasaurs for my PhD and, and wrote about them from a conventional, secular, and evolutionary perspective, uh, I was not an uh, evolutionist uh, at that time. 
Um, I wrote about them from within the context of the standard model of, uh, of geology and paleontology, uh, but I was known to be a young earth creationist to my advisors, uh, both uh, there at Rhode Island as well as all the other schools that I was at. So my position regarding mosasaurs has never changed, or, or my dissertation work has never changed. Uh, it was simply done in a different paradigm compared to the one that I would prefer to operate in, uh, which is young earth creationism. Gotcha, gotcha. Thank you for that clarification. I actually found that sure. information on Liberty University's uh, website. Mm. I'm going to have to talk to somebody about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually found it on there. So, yeah, that's interesting. Though. But thank you for that clarification, Dr. Ross. So, as you guys you know, we are here tonight to discuss uh, Young Earth Creation. So, the idea is to sort of filter through some of these questions from the audience so they can actually uh give you some some uh, take younger creation through the labyrinth the 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 terrain the the interrogation you know so they can get their questions in to see what you guys think about some of these questions as you know uh, there are a lot of questions out there that some uh, some people who are sort of teetering on the young earth creation position has some concerns you know uh, and and some of them are leaning closer to younger creation uh stepping away from older creation and theistic evolution and so i think it's important to have these discussions to be able to have these conversations so we can filter through some of these questions and that's why I brought on some of the some of the more uh, higher voices, more experienced voices, should I say, in this particular area of thought. So um, I have a question here uh, from Slam RN, and Slam RN is a is a gospel truth mod. So uh, she has a question here. All right, how does Young Earth creation astronomy make sense uh, seeing the same supernova uh, SN? Ref is, I don't know what that is. Uh, explo explosion at the last four different times. If light is instantaneous, we're going toward the earth. Thanks. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. And I know exactly what you're asking. So uh, the the answer is, well, let me, set, let me set it up just to kind of give everybody a picture of what's going on here. So there is a distant supernova. Supernova is when a star blows itself to bits and it briefly becomes extremely bright. Stars are big, so the explosion actually lasts several months, but that star will become as bright as the entire galaxy that it's in. It will actually compete with the rest of the galaxy. It's, it's amazing. I've seen several supernovae in my uh, career. So there was one that happened that was really far away, and in between that supernova and Earth, where we're seeing it, there is a cluster of galaxies, and that cluster of galaxies caused the light to be bent and so, it, and so instead of seeing one supernova, we saw four different images. It formed kind of wow. what they call an Einstein cross. It's really remarkable. And uh, the interesting thing was a year later, we saw a fifth image because the light had taken a different route. And so people mm -hmm. say, well, why? So the, the four images were simultaneous. They, they were at the same time. And then there was a fifth image that was a year later. And so the question is, if light's instantaneous when it's moving toward me, um, how do you, how does the fifth image take longer? The answer is because the light wasn't originally moving toward you. The light was moving a little bit away and it got bent by the gravity of those galaxies. So then it was directed toward you. And so the speed actually would, would change if you're using the anisotropic synchrony convention. In that convention, we see things happen in real time if the light's uh, directly toward the observer. So uh, with events like that, where the light's not directed toward the observer, you have to use a formula to figure out what the speed is. And I have that formula. It's in my book, The Physics of Einstein. It's also in my technical paper on this topic uh, that I um, published back in 2010 on the Answers, and Answers Research Journal. 
So um, you can check that out. And if you do the calculation, you'll find that sure enough, uh, the light would take, because it's, it's at a wider angle, it would travel to a slower speed and therefore it would take an additional year uh, to get to the place where it's bent to where it then speeds up and heads directly to Earth. Okay, uh, any thoughts, Dr. Marcus? No, uh, <laughs> when, it, when, uh, when it comes to this topic, uh, I'm a geologist. I spent all my time looking down at my feet, never looked up at the sky. So yeah, I'm going to defer to, to uh, Jason on these. Uh, that's all good. That's all good. So I got a question for you guys uh, while we're still filtering questions. Why is Young Earth creation important? Why, why is that an important, why, why is it so important? Why, why do you think it's important? And why should we not like compromise on the Young Earth creation? Uh, position. What do you guys think about that? Oh, well, a, I'll, I'll give two point. reasons. And I'll go. Go ahead. Go ahead, Marcus. No, that's all right, Jason. Go ahead and give two reasons. That'll give me a chance to sort my thoughts. All right. <laughs> all right. Then you can add additional ones. Or anyway, um, two reasons that come to view immediately. First of all, it is what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that God created in six days, and it's clear from context. Those are ordinary days. Uh, most of us can't read the Bible in the original languages, but that's no excuse these days because we have so many wonderful translations into English. And frankly, you can get Bible software to go back and check. And there's no doubt that's what the text says. And so any hermeneutic, any, any method of interpreting the scripture that says, no, the Bible doesn't remotely mean what it says here. If you're consistent, why would you trust in the Gospels, right? Any, any method that says, uh, well, you know, we need to consult the scientists to tell us what's possible. And they say six days of creation is not possible. They also say a virgin birth is not possible. Jesus turning water into wine is not possible. Resurrection from the dead is not possible. Are you going to reinterpret those sections to be consistent? Ultimately, uh, it's important because it is what the Bible teaches when you examine it exegetically, when you let the text speak for itself and you interpret it in a hermeneutically consistent fashion, the same way we would interpret other sections of Scripture. Uh, Genesis is written in the standard historical narrative style, so there's no doubt that that's what it means. And then the second, the second thing that's really key is uh, what is the origin of death? According to Genesis, death is something that was introduced into a world that was originally very good. And by the way, what kind of a world would a perfect God create, create a perfect world? And it was perfect until Adam and Eve ruined it. God gave them the power of contrary choice. They decided to rebel against him. God told them what the consequences would be in death entered the world at that point, and it spread to all men. It spread to animals, too, because animals were under Adam's dominion. And so the, the things that are under, you know, we understand the nature of authority, right? When our government does something stupid, we suffer because we're under their authority. That's the, that's the way authority works. And so those are the two reasons that I think uh, it's important to believe in the biblical timescale. It is what the Bible teaches. And if you accept millions of years, if you believe the fossils are millions of years old, you got death before Adam sinned in which case death cannot be the penalty for sin, in which case, why did Jesus die on the cross? It really throws the whole gospel under the rug. All right, Dr. Marcus. Sure, I would say uh, my answers are gonna be broadly similar here. Um, I like how Jason uh, mentions, you know, this is what the Bible teaches. This is, uh, the, often we call it like the straightforward reading of the text or something like that. I would also say that it, it matches up with the consistency across all the pages of scripture from this. Uh, when we take a look at how other areas of scripture look back at the early pages of Genesis, what we find is that all of this makes the most sense together from the perspective of a young earth with a historical Adam that is the progenitor of all human beings, not just some or the most recent, but all of them. 
uh, leading to a judgment at Noah's flood that is talked about later in the New Testament as an event that affects all of humanity. So when we're looking canonically about this, um, I think what we get is a picture that there is no one in Scripture that ever looks at this any way different than uh, what something like young earth creationism says that it is. So I think that aspect of consistency across the pages of Scripture is one of the more powerful arguments for young earth creationism and one of the reasons why we should pay closer attention to this as, as a topic. And uh, like Jason had said about, um, about death, I think one of the things that's most important about these early pages of Genesis and why young earth creationism makes the most sense out of this is that Genesis sets up the reasons why the world is the way that it is, right? We already live in this world. We live in the present and everybody who would be, you know, in the past was living in their own present, but all of those present periods were periods in which people were looking and seeing that there was suffering and difficulty, good and bad, are all around them. And how do we make sense of a world that has both good and bad? And Genesis sets up the reason why we have an initially good world, how badness comes into it, uh, and, and as Jason mentioned, from, from our own decisions, right? From the, the authority uh, that began with Adam, and we are all in Adam, so we are all in the wake of this decision of sin that he and Eve undertook in the garden. And this explanation that is presented in the Bible for why we live in a world that is pretty good, but still has a lot of really bad in it, helps us to make sense of who we are, what our state is before a just and holy God, and why it is that we end up needing salvation through Jesus Christ in the first place. You know, we can all kind of sense that there's something not quite right with the world. And Genesis helps to orient us to a world that was better, that has gone wrong, but God's not done with it. And he has a plan to redeem it back for himself. Okay, thank you so much. And we have another couple questions here. All right, this question comes from Tutu, from Mundo. Thank you for the question. Uh, just for fun, I know God had purpose for everything, but what if Darwin never existed? Thanks. I love Dr. Lyle and Dr. Ross, by the way. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? What it's the first time Dr. Lyle has had to talk to Dr. Ross, and it hasn't been a debate with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's, what it's the other Dr. Existed? Ross. It's the other Dr. Ross. That's right. The one with the, the better theology. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, let, let, me, uh, let me jump in on this one. This is a neat question, right? We always like hypotheticals and what, what would the world be like if? If the world never had Darwin, we would have evolutionary theory today. Um, what we see from the, the standpoint of Victorian England, uh, contemporaries in places like France and Germany, is that there were people who were thinking along these lines at the same time that Darwin was. This march towards, uh, or this march away from God's direct involvement in the world, the march towards a more and more wall-like deistic being that eventually sheds direct connection with the biological world is one of those things that was just kind of part of the trend. We saw the dominoes dip, fall through different aspects. And not to say that some of those dominoes weren't, weren't important, right? Uh, Jason, obviously, in focusing on astronomy and physics, like the laws in which God operates the world are tremendously important. But what happened sociologically is that people moved from looking at God as having an integrated aspect to those laws where God is fully in control of them and can move them around at will to God kind of sets them up and lets them run. And then that perspective on the external universe made its way into geology and then made it way, its way into biology until there was a complete 
God's substitute in terms of the mechanistic view of the world. And so at the same time that Darwin is coming up with the origin, uh, the, the idea of evolution, you've got Wallace, uh, a contemporary of his, who's also coming along those same lines, uh, and others. So if Darwin hadn't come up with evolutionary theory uh, the way that he did, others had tried previously, we would have had something like it. Uh, and we'd, we'd probably still be here, I think. All right, Dr. Lau, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Uh, of course, you could you could further the question and say, well, couldn't God prevent anyone from coming up with? Yeah, yeah he could, but um, he could prevent anyone from doing anything bad. But then none of us would be here. So, God God has a plan for the wickedness that He allows, and uh, and the, and the other premise that I need to put forth is God is not required to tell us what that purpose is. We, we know what the grand purpose is, and we get an example of this in Christ. Christ is the best example of God allowing something wicked to happen, and we see what the purpose for it is, and the purpose is awesome, right? Because Christ being crucified, that was, the, that was the most wicked action that has ever happened because he was the only person who didn't deserve it. And what did God use he, he, that for? He used it to accomplish the salvation of all his people. That's awesome. So just because we don't always know what the purpose for wickedness is God. We know God has one, and it's always something that is better than the than the, than the the wickedness. It's something that makes it that makes it worth it. So, um, God does allow people to come up with philosophy to, with philosophies that are contrary to His word. That's not new. Um, Darwin wasn't the first to come up with an evolutionary type idea. The Greeks had something like that. I think it was Empedocles that came up with something surprisingly similar to Darwinian evolution. Darwin just kind of repackaged it, attached it to natural selection and so on, and tried to persuade people um, of that. But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, God has a purpose for allowing these false philosophies. And uh, there, there's a, to some extent, God respects human freedom. And so if people want to rebel against him and sin against him, now God can change that. He can turn our hearts around, certainly. Praise God, he does that. But, he's, but sometimes he allows people to uh, hate him and to reject him and to latch on to a philosophy that's contrary to his word. He does allow that. Mm. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for that for that answer. And here is a, another question here. It's come from Superboy Prime. Thank you for the question. How do we explain the word day in Genesis 1? How can it, how can it use the word day if the sun wasn't made till day 4? Just an argument I've heard and was wondering your response. I think this is, yeah, a, I think this is actually an argument yeah. that uh, I think both of you heard, but I know most recently I've heard Dr. Uh, sorry, uh, Michael Jones from Aspiring Philosophy try to use this argument against you, Dr. Marcus. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see Jason shaking his head. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so silly because it's, this is where people that you need to take a high school astronomy class because it's it's not the sun that sets the length of the day it's primarily the rotation of the earth that's where we get the 24 hours the sun the sun just provides a relatively permanent source of light but if you read genesis genesis 1 3 god creates the light first genesis 1 3 god said let there be light and there was light so as long as you have light and god separated the day from the light so light's coming from one direction and then you have, as long as you have light in a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. And so we had that for the first three days. God's providing the light for those first three days. He's got some kind of temporary light source, or maybe he's just making the light supernaturally. But in any case, he replaces that light source with the sun on uh, day four to be a permanent light bearer. 
So you're going to have ordinary day and night before the sun. It's just, you, all you need is a light, a light source. And we had that, and we had a rotating planet because in Genesis 1-5, the evening and the morning were the first day. So uh, it's, it's not a problem. You're going to have ordinary days before the sun. It's just the sun replaced the temporary light that God used before then. Dr. Marcus? Yeah. So, uh, Marlon, I guess you, uh, you watched the debate that I had with Mike Jones. I did. Um, and that was, you know, that was a substantive, solid debate. He, uh, he certainly brings a good game. And um, when, he, when he asked, you know, kind of about this, you know, what was the, the, you know, what was the source of light that God gave? I just said light, right? And the reason that I said that in part was because I know that he had a couple of quick and snappy kind of, you know, answers that like, oh, if the light came from God, what does he do? Turn himself on or turn himself off? And I just didn't want to work. I didn't want to have to answer that kind of silliness because I've seen him use that argument elsewhere. And, you know, sticking to the biblical text, like Jason had said, we have light and we're not told what it, you know, where it is or in what form it's taken, but we don't need that information. We don't need that at all. As Jason said, a rotating planet gets us evenings and mornings. And that's important for um, for folks who are reading the text, because sometimes they'll say, well, maybe this is God's day. Well, no, because the days are being defined in the context of their existence on Earth. These are not God's days. These are Earth days. And as a result, they're going to be something like, you know, 24-hour period of time. They're, they're, they're a rotational day, whatever speed that happens to be. One of the things that the, the text of Genesis is also doing um, subtly at this point, but more, uh, but a stronger subtlety comes in later on, is deprioritizing the sun as an aspect of worship, right? One of the things that we see in, in day four is that God talks about the, the sun and the moon, not by their names in Hebrew, which is Shemesh and Yerich, but instead he is referring to them solely by their function of what they do, their lights. And of course you don't worship a candle. Even in the ancient world, you didn't worship the candles. That's, that's dumb. But everybody worshiped sun. And everybody worshiped the moon. And God refuses to use those names in Genesis 4 as a way of deprioritizing and debasing the deities that are associated with them. Because in the Canaanite language, the words are the same. Shemesh and Yeriach are not just the sun and the moon. They're the sun god and the moon god. Um, and so you've, you've got this way in which by not naming them at all, God is basically saying they don't exist. The sun exists. It's a big light. The moon exists. It's the little light. But I'm not talking about any of these gods, lest you think that I built the gods along with it. And I think in a similar way in Genesis 1, by not have, by God cleverly at the beginning of creation, right, before any humans are around, before he's ever going to be talking to Israelites, he creates light knowing that he is deprioritizing a future pagan set of religions that will be worshiping the sun. Mm, interesting. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much for those well-rounded responses. All right, so we have a super chat here. Thank you so much, Daily Gripe, for the super chat. Appreciate you. Uh, speaking about the flood, was it a worldwide catastrophic event or a local event specific to the ancient Near East? Well, I think Jason and I are both going to be in uh, very strong agreement that this was a global event. Uh, it's described in, in uh, global fashion, although using the term global is perhaps inapt uh, biblically simply because the Bible doesn't speak of the world as a globe. So I've, I've had people say like, oh, you can't use the word global, Bible, like whatever. Okay, the worldwide flood. And uh, one of the things that I think is really helpful for us to understand that this is worldwide is how it's treated in the Old Testament and the New Testament and thinking about the context of those people and their geographic knowledge at the time. So if one wanted to try and say that maybe the flood was local, 
because the Israelites had this small view of all the places in the world. And the flood covered all of those, but they didn't know about the Himalayas and they didn't know about Southern Africa and they didn't know about Australia. So it couldn't have covered those. It's just covering their world. Fast forward a little bit to the time of Peter, where Peter in the first century AD is a citizen of the Roman Empire and they know where Spain is, right? The ancient Israelites might not know of where Spain is. And yet Peter is also saying that the entire world was destroyed by this flood and only eight survived. So no matter what your geographic assumptions are about these folks, the entire world that they know of is, is covered by the flood. So it's either local and small and then grows bigger, or it simply is worldwide in its extent, no matter who in the Bible you're talking to. So I think that's a, a powerful evidence uh, intra-testamentally and, and between the testaments that we're looking at a, a worldwide flood. All right, Dr. Lau? Yeah, and I'll just add too that, you know, the Bible says all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. And so it's using a, the Hebrew word there for all and whole is the same word, it's kol. And when it's doubled like that, it means absolutely all. So I, I realize that all, when it's used just once, can can be a limited sense. But uh, all the high hills under the whole heaven, that means everything. All Every mountain was covered on the earth. And so I was kind of expecting uh, uh, Marcus to give uh, the geological evidence. So I was thinking of the biblical. But the, the reason... The reason we should believe in a worldwide flood is because it is what the Bible teaches. The science is secondary. So that was a perfectly good answer. <laughs> yeah, thinking about uh, that, that word coal that's used uh, as all, every, everything, our Bible, uh, our Bible translations mix it up because if they used it the same way every time, it, it wouldn't quite make sense. But there are 62 instances, I believe, of coal in the text of Genesis 6 through 8. And this is, this is your mother talking, right? When you think about the ways that we build emphasis, we can use italics and old. Uh, praise God, there's no emoji Bible, right? But we've got emojis, all these ways in which we build emphasis. But in an ancient text like the Bible, there is only really one way to build emphasis, and that is through repetition. And, and Jason had mentioned kind of like in one-offs, you get things that are hyperbolic. Like in, in uh, the book of Judges, you find that in the middle of Judges, in like chapter 15, it says that and the Israelites had taken over all of the land and they possessed all the land. And you're like, but we're only halfway through, uh, sorry, the book of Joshua, we're only halfway through and they're still going through, right? This is a hyperbolic statement that God is fulfilling his promise and they're taking it all. It's all theirs. They just have to go get it. But right, they have all the land. That's not anything like what you see in the text of Genesis 6, 7, and 8, especially 7, really heavy in all of this uh, as all the animals are dying the water is rising higher and higher all the high hills as, as jason mentioned uh, are covered with water and the the hills that the ark eventually lands on are way far away from the holy land uh, these are the the mountains of uratu what we call ararat or you know these are areas up around armenia and turkey that the average Israelite would sort of know geographically they're somewhere, but like they never went there. That's way, way far away. Uh, and so by talking about these hills, all the high hills under the whole heaven, it's like there's no way to get around the worldwide nature uh, of this. Mm. Okay. All right. All right. All right. We have another question here. And this is, he specifically pinned it to Dr. Lau. When do you expect to receive a Nobel Prize uh, for your correct predictions regarding the James Webb Space Telescope? I'm expecting the call to come in any day. I, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Isn't that funny? Yeah, so this is the question's alluding to the fact that uh, back uh, January last year, I made some predictions about what the James Webb, James Webb Space Telescope would detect based on my understanding of biblical creation, and in particular, the model that I've, the cosmological model that I've constructed on the basis of that. And my predictions, I made three major ones, and they were exactly the opposite of what the secularists were predicting. So it was, it was kind of a bold prediction because they're saying you're going to see these galaxies that will, that are, you know, the far, farther away they are, you're looking back in time. And so they're going to, they're look, they're, they're early galaxies. They're going to be sort of clumpy, irregular, and very low mass. And they'll stop at some point because they hadn't formed yet. And I said, nope, they're going to keep going out and they'll be massive. They'll be massive like nearby galaxies and well-structured. They're not going to be clumpy and they'll have heavy elements in them. And uh, so my, my three predictions were verified in July when the uh, Webb Space Telescope uh, found that, yes, uh, the evidence is very consistent with the creation cosmological model, at least the one that I've, I've put out. And the um, funny thing is, too, I predicted what the secularists would say when their predictions failed. Because the Bible not only tells me something about the universe, it tells me something about human nature. Mm. And so rather than giving up and saying, you know what, we better rethink the Big Bang, my prediction was they would just push it back further. They'd say, well, galaxies must, must have formed much earlier than previously thought. And, and that's exactly mm. what they predicted. So, uh, so Nobel Committee, I, I'm, I'm waiting. My phone's, you know, my phone's on. <laughs> I'm not call screening or anything. So <laughs> no call, just give a call, call. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any, any thoughts on Dr. Lyle's uh, Nobel Prize uh, soon to come, uh, Dr. Marcus? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, that's uh, that's really cool to to hear about. And um, so uh, maybe you could tell Jason: uh, Is there a place where you wrote about that that people can take a look and, and see, you know, mm. the specifics of what you said? Yeah. So the the original article it's on my website. It's on biblicalscienceinstitute.com, and you go back to uh, January last year. Go back to the archives. January, I think January twenty second last year is when when I made the predictions. Biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And then in September, I wrote a follow-up article showing what the James Webb uh, Telescope had, in fact, detected and, and showing some of the articles where the, the uh, secular astronomers had responded to that. Mm. Very good. Very good. All right. We have another question here. Uh, God's Truth. What are some younger creation arguments that we should not use? What are some younger creation uh, uh, arguments that we should not use? Um, well, since we're just talking, oh, oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> there's a there's a little bit of a delay here, so that's why yeah, we're a little a, bit, you know, because the earth yeah. the earth is round and there's a set. You right. know, there's satellites. Well, I, I guess I'll start calling out who I want to <laughs> want to go first, and so to eliminate the confusion. Thank I, you, think that, I think yeah. I think that's my job as a host. So I should I should actually be doing that. Uh, uh, Dr. Marcus, you mind uh, filling us in on this one? Sure. So let's go back to um, some of the issues of Noah's flood, and one of the things that uh, people will sometimes say. Uh, concerning evidence for the flood is that um, because we have fossils, especially ocean fossils on the tops of mountains, uh, it is proof that Noah's flood uh, happened. And that is both correct and incorrect at the same time. So for example, on the, on the summit of Mount, uh, of Mount Everest, you have got Cretaceous ammonite fossils. So ammonites are like the things that are behind me on the uh, uh, on the wall, there are these little coiled shells, and they have a little squid that would have stuck out of them, squid-like animal. And uh, they're very abundant fossils. And near the summit of Mount Washington, you have these bent and broken sedimentary rocks that are sticking up, and there's ammonite fossils in there. 
And so people are tempted to say, hey, look at that. There's ocean fossils on the mountains. They must have been covered with water. And the issue is that the rocks were made underwater, but they were made underwater before they were mountains. And that is that layers of, of rock that contain fossils are made flat because gravity works, right? And gravity will take the sediment, they'll spread it out, and then you'll get new sediment on top and so on and so forth, up it goes. And so you're going to get a stack going from old to young. And then eventually those rocks, when mountains are formed, are bent and tilted and shifted. And you're seeing the evidence of that uplift, of that mountain forming uh, happening after the flood is done. One of the reasons why the Himalayas are so big is that they didn't suffer very much erosion because they were formed towards the late end um, and into the post-flood world. So um, if we're thinking about arguments that we should avoid, uh, watch out for the seashells on mountains prove that Noah's flood was global. I think that the evidence is still that Noah's flood was global. Those rocks had to be formed underwater, but it's not because they were on the mountains at that time. All right, Dr. Lau? Uh, there's a few I could mention. Moon dust, uh, the idea that the, you know, the, the moon collects dust as it orbits because particles fall on it and such, and it accumulates dust. And so the idea is if it were billions of years old, it should have hundreds of feet of dust and a billion has a couple inches. And uh, some creationists have thought that that's a good argument. When I first heard that, I thought that was a pretty good argument. The problem is we don't know the rate at which dust accumulates on the moon, at least not well. Now, that might become a good argument in the future when we, if, if we are able to determine that, that rate with some accuracy. Right now, we don't know what it is, and therefore you shouldn't use it. Or the sun is shrinking, and if, you know, and we, or that we can measure that the sun is shrinking, and that in the past it was therefore much bigger, and you, you can't go back billions of years. I don't see any good evidence for that. I used the SOHO spacecraft during my doctoral research, and I didn't see any evidence that the sun was uh, uh, shrinking in terms of the actual physical size of it. Uh, that, would, that would be detectable by modern technology, but we don't see it. So I don't think that's a good argument either. I mean, there's a few others that people will throw in, but uh, those are two that in, in my field that I hear sometimes, and I'm thinking, yeah, you really shouldn't use that. Then there's ones like that are kind of nuanced, like, like the one that uh, Dr. Ross gave. Um, Saturn's rings, uh, the, the fact that they, they rings, ring systems are inherently unstable. They will spiral into the planet uh, due to tidal forces. That's true. They can't last billions of years. That's true. Doesn't prove that Saturn is old it just, or that Saturn is young. It just proves the rings are young. So just be careful about that one. That does show that the rings are young, but it doesn't, some secularists are willing to admit that, yeah, the rings can't be billions of years old. But they'll say the planet is, and then the rings formed recently in some collisions. So just you, know, you got to think through the implications of some of these things. All right, all right. Thank you, guys. All right, so we have another question here. I think this will probably fit you, Dr. Marcus Ross. Uh, iron preservation in bones for 65 million years. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that even realistic? Is that possible? What, what would you? Because well, I heard this argument too before. And so, what, what, what would you say to that? Gotcha. So the, the background context for this is that um, in 2005, there was the first report of soft tissue preservation in dinosaur bones and not just preservation like uh, a skin impression or an outline of where the organs were, but rather when the leg bone of a T-Rex was opened up and the material was demineralized, there was still stuff in it and it looked like it was blood vessels and other types of tissues from the actual T-Rex. 
this was a shocking development. Uh, I mean, there were audible gasps in the audience when the first video of this was shown where Mary Schweitzer is using tweezers to pull the, uh, the blood vessel and it snaps back into place like a blood vessel would. Um, mm. And like, I mean, full of paleontologists, secular paleontologists, like <gasps> what's going on? And it wouldn't be the only instance of this. Later on, more and more of this stuff would be found out, found out not only from that specimen, but from others that Schweitzer and her team has excavated, and now other people and other teams that have excavated and discovered that there's all sorts of soft tissue. Mostly evolutionist work. Some young Earth creationists have also uh, uncovered this type of material. Some of that was featured in the documentary that I was on uh, called Is Genesis History uh, back in 2017. Since Schweitzer's initial discovery, she has also, as a good scientist and someone who is convinced that the Earth is ancient, been on the hunt for a, uh, a chemistry that could potentially preserve these materials for 60, 80 plus million years uh, over time. And the reason that she's on the hunt for this chemistry is that these biological molecules are unstable. Even tough, difficult ones like collagen, uh, which is a connective tissue, it's like you know the material that keeps our skin uh, in place, more or less, is collagen. It's tough, it's elastic, but even that's not going to last under even the best laboratory conditions. Um, hundreds of thousands of years, you know, maybe a couple million in some of the simulation, but we've got all kinds of other proteins involved. And so she has uh, come up with uh, an interesting proof of concept chemistry that uses iron as a binding agency because oxygen is the main enemy here. If oxygen is allowed to go in and start destroying stuff biologically, then you all you end up with is goop. You end up with like oil and tar inside and you don't get any structure. So she's looking for iron as a way of binding up this oxygen and keeping it from going out and, and destroying stuff. Um, but what she's done in the lab doesn't have applicability to the real world. Uh, when she had to lyse material, put it through centrifuges, purify it, rehydrate it, lyse it again, put it through another round of centrifuge. Like you don't get to spin a bone at uh, 10,000 revolutions per minute um, in the earth, right? The, the dinosaur bone doesn't get to do that. Uh, now she's doing that to try and get purified samples for things. But the problem is inside a dinosaur bone that's being fossilized, there's no purification process. And none of these uh, methods uh, ultimately, I think, apply. So um, to her credit, again, she is doing very, very good work uh, trying to see if there is a way that these data can remain explicable within an ancient Earth view. I don't think ultimately that's going to be successful, uh, but I expect that the work is going to continue because it needs to, in a sense. All right. Uh, Dr. Lau, any thoughts? Uh, I don't really have anything to add to that other than uh, I think uh, Dr. Kevin Anderson had done some research on that as well and came to the same conclusion uh, before his untimely passing, unfortunately. But uh, I find it very compelling. I, I, when you see that soft tissue and those and the red, what appear to be red blood cells in them, it's just very compelling. These things did not live millions of years ago. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, red blood cells, they're osteocytes. These are bone forming cells that, that are found in between a split point between two blood, vessel, uh, two blood vessels. Uh, and they used fluorescent tags, the, these little uh, molecular signals that when you shine fluorescent light will tell you if they've bound to a particular material. And they got three different vertebrate specific proteins. So it's not mm -hmm. like this was bacteria that made something that looked like a, a, a blood vessel mm -hmm. or a cell. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got this tag, they've got small snippets of DNA, little pieces of like one, two, and three bits of DNA to it. So it's not like a book, it's more like a book that went through a chipper shredder. Um, 
But nonetheless, that's there. And these biological materials are, are just tremendously delicate. And it, they mm -hmm. really have biological horizons that are very recent. You can't extrapolate their existence 68 to 80 million years uh, in, into the distant past. It, that's, that's forever. And forever doesn't happen biologically. I guess a, next, another, a question I would probably flow out of this same area of topic is how long would organic material of that nature last? Like what, what would be, I guess, what would be the, the longest something like that that could last, you know, without fully decomposing and being nothing but a fossil fuel at that point? So how, how what, what would be the longest lifespan of organic material in that state, if that makes sense? That's a good question, Marlon. Um, and it depends on what biological molecules you're looking at. So DNA is a much more fragile material than something like collagen. Collagen can stick around and persist. And at least the computer simulations uh, based on degradation in the lab for collagen say, I think 2 million years was the last paper that I had seen. There could be more research since then. But that, that is the absolute ideal you know, end of the line for it if everything's going perfect. To get you an idea of how how easily these things start to degrade is that Schweitzer's team has been able to map the degradation of the material inside the T-Rex from when they excavated it over the past 15 years. So they broke this thing open, they found this stuff, and even their samples, which are kept in a minus 80 degree Fahrenheit uh, freezer, right, in order to slow down biological reactions, slow down thermodynamics as much as possible, even kept in a minus 80 freezer, they're seeing degradation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, measurable rates of it. So you look at it and say, I just don't see how this could be millions of years old. This looks like it's only thousands of years old. And, and I'll say this, young earth creationists were not expecting these data either. Yeah. Uh, none of us were expecting that there would be soft tissue in dinosaur bones or mosasaur material or other sorts of things, partly because I think for myself, speaking as a paleontologist, I was trained to think about fossilization in a particular way, not necessarily just the slow and gradual sort of thing, but rather in terms of complete mineral replacement. That's the model that we have for what happens. A bone eventually becomes all mineral through substitution. And what seems to happen with Schweitzer's material and some of the others that's been discovered is that either the outside becomes completely mineralized and thus becomes uh, a seal for the inside stuff that is now hermetically encapsulated and does not fossilized. Or as Kevin Anderson's research that Jason had mentioned here shows that even when you have something that is infused with minerals, there is still original proteinaceous stuff in it that hasn't been replaced. And that really upends the way that we think about the fossilization process itself. And I was never trained to think about it that way. No, none of us were. We all just kind of had our assumptions about how this happens. And then, um, you know, thinking about Nobel Prizes, <laughs> I don't know that Schweitzer's going to get one, but my goodness, she, she made one of the discoveries that will go down in the annals of history as one of the most interesting and important discoveries, um, certainly of my lifetime. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. All right, so we have another question here. And Dr. Jason Lau, do you think... Uh, younger creation is necessary for salvation. No. And, uh, you know, I, I, and frankly, I don't know anyone who does. We get accused of this all the time saying, you know, younger creationists say you have to believe in six days to be saved. I don't know anyone who believes that. I don't believe that. Um, that being said, uh, I do think that the, that biblical creation understood as literal historical reality 
is necessary to properly understand the gospel because it's in Genesis we learn that death is not something that preceded human beings for, for hundreds of millions of years, but in fact is the result of Adam's sin. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Genesis, if you will, gives us the bad news, and then the gospel is, is the good news. But fortunately, God doesn't require us to have perfectly consistent theology to save us. We're saved on the basis of his grace received through faith in Christ. That's what's necessary for salvation. All right, Dr. Mark, anything to add? Yeah, I'm certainly grateful that I'm not going to be facing a theological exam when I see St. Peter at the gates, right? You know, and you know, fill out this, uh, <laughs> this Scantron sheet. We're going to run this off. You know, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I think I understand how this idea got started, right? Because many of us who hold to different positions, whether it's old earth creation or young earth creation or theistic evolution or what have you, a lot of us are passionate advocates for our position. And I think especially for many young earth creationists who um, I think rightly point to how a young earth creation perspective makes sense of the gospel. It explains the details of the gospel and the reasons why so much better than the other ones. And we're frequent to point this out, I think, because it's a, a strong strength. You know, it's a big strength to young earth creationism. But I think for those who hear that sometimes, especially for those who are um, a little irritated maybe with the speaker or things like that, is that they're going to hear, I need to believe this in order to be a good Christian. And then later that gets translated into, I need to believe this in order to be a Christian. And so I, I hope nobody who's listening gets that from, from us here tonight. Salvation comes by, by grace through faith alone. And that's it. it it's, a, it's a work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the, the proof and the power of his resurrection we can enter into uh, the glory of God because we have been redeemed as heirs uh, alongside Jesus Christ because of his work. We've done nothing to deserve it. We've done everything to, to dis-deserve dis it. In fact, you know, that, that can be said. Right? We, don't, we don't get any chance to do this on our own. And uh, for those of us in young earth creationism, I would, I would say maybe to the audience who is a young earth creationist out there, please be careful when you talk about this to others so they don't get that perception. Uh, recognize that the gospel always and forever comes first. Uh, and then we'll let it sort out that afterwards. We all have time, uh, some time to work out our theology, but even when we don't, the thief on the cross, he didn't have time to work out his theology. What did he do? He believed Jesus. Mm. So, believe Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so we do have another question here. Uh, where'd it go? All right, here it is. Thank you so much, Jamie, for the question. Explain the Hawaiian Islands formation. The chain seems to be to all have been formed from a single hotspot as the Earth's surface shifted over time. Doctor Lau? Indeed, it does. Yeah, that's oh, a that's Dr. a Moss? good. That's a Doctor Ross question. Doctor Mark. All right, all right. No, no. I'll take the volcanoes. I think I know the answer, answer, but we'll let the geologists. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, yeah, the the Hawaiian Islands do look like they were formed sequentially over time as uh, the Pacific Plate rides over top of what we call geologically a hot spot. You can think of a hot spot as a plume of magma that is starting deep under the earth, in the case of the Hawaiian Islands, probably near the core mantle boundary, uh, rising up through the mantle and then poking its way up through the crust. And as it does, it oozes lava and builds a volcano. And that volcano, if it gets big enough, becomes an island. 
and then the Pacific plate is moving, so it takes that island with it, but the hotspot remains in place and it builds another island. So you end up with this series of islands that could be explained either by the hotspot is drifting and forming islands, or the plate is moving over top of the hotspot, which is staying stable. And um, prior to the plate tectonics revolution in geology, people probably would have thought that the hotspot was flowing and moving. But now that we understand that plates, big chunks of the Earth's crust, are able to shift and move, uh, then we realize that no, actually the hotspots are relatively stable. In fact, we are able to map out a whole bunch of hotspots in relation to one another. And that helps us actually understand that it must be the plate that's moving. Otherwise, all the hotspots are moving in concert together like a, like a, a dance troupe, which is very unparsimonious uh, of it. It's, that would be very unlikely. So um, young Earth creationists uh, have recognized this, and this is part of why many of us in creation geology believe that plate tectonics in an accelerated catastrophic fashion is part of, or it is indeed the main mechanism by which Noah's flood operated. Um, and so we would look at something like the Hawaiian island chain, which goes, you know, not only the islands you can see, but then those islands duck down underneath the water and continue. And there's a strong bend. You see these things called the Emperor Seamounts, and they head up towards Alaska. And it's, it's part of a big, long chain. So this, this hotspot's been going for a long time, and the plate has been riding over it for a long time. And most of us believe that this is uh, material that is being emplaced primarily during Noah's flood, and the most recent volcanics has, have happened uh, as the flood ended in, and in the post-flood world. Mm. Any thoughts, Dr. Lau? Good stuff. I just point out this is apparently is one of those areas where the secularists and creation scientists more or less agree, except on the time scale. We agree on the mechanism. All right, all right. And here is a question, Dr. Lau, do you think the earth was, uh, was, was tilted before the fall of Adam and Eve? I do, uh, for a number of reasons. For one, the, the tilt of the Earth, it's actually a design feature. Um, and and uh, it's, if you make the Earth less tilted, you wouldn't, well, if you make it zero tilt, you don't get seasons. And you might say, well, that's nice. Be like California, you know. Get, you know. <laughs> but the problem <laughs> is that would reduce the habitable zones of the Earth. It makes the equator hotter. It makes the poles colder, substantially so. If you tilt it more, that increases the habitable zones. But if you tilt it more than it is now, then the seasons become extreme. You get really hot summers, really cold winters. And so the, the current tilt of the Earth seems pretty optimal for maximizing habitable zones without having extreme seasons. So it appears to be a design feature and therefore is something that was there from the beginning. Uh, the other thing is uh, it's not easy to change the Earth's tilt. It, it, you think, well, an asteroid could do it. And any asteroid that could change the Earth's tilt would obliterate the entire surface of the Earth. It would, it would completely vaporize the surface. So uh, the Earth has a lot of angular momentum. Now, obviously, God could do something supernatural if he wants to. But then I would, I would want to have a textual biblical basis for that. And we don't see that. So uh, the tilt of the Earth is a good thing. And it's a design feature. The, the um, direction it's pointed changes over time, but the amount of tilt stays around around 23 and a half degrees. Mm. Any thoughts, Dr. Marcus? Sure. Um, just thinking about going back to Genesis 1, where we see on the fourth day when God creates the greater light and the lesser light, and he creates the stars, and he puts them in there for, for, uh, you know, for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And so seasons 
in this case, you know, we tend to think, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall, and, and sort of like that, but especially for the ancient Near East, they're just thinking like the wet season when you're going to be planting certain things and, you know, drier season where you're going to be doing other sorts of things. But all of that is the same thing, right? It's connected to the fact that we have a tilt. If we didn't have that, then we wouldn't have any seasonality uh, whatsoever. So, yeah, I think that we've got textual clues right there from the very beginning that uh, that what we now recognize as the Earth's tilt is something that God knew about, right? He, he built the earth that way so that we would have these sorts of patterns and seasonalities. Mm. All right, all right, cool, cool. All right, here have, here's another question for you guys. What is Darwin, uh, Darwinian evolution theory biggest flaw and why can it be compatible with the biblical narrative? Dr. Lau? Uh, the biggest flaw is it's contrary to what God has said in his word. That's the biggest flaw. Uh, secondarily, it would uh, it would ruin our justification for the scientific method. Science actually is predicated on biblical creation, where God has created the universe and imposed order on it so we can detect order, and God upholds things in a consistent fashion. Uh, that's what makes science possible. And I've, I've written a lot on this. The, the subject gets quite complex. I won't go into too much detail, but just to point out that one of the reasons that science blossomed in the Christian West is because uh, science has a Christian foundation. We've gotten away from that today. A lot of scientists are secularists. They've forgotten that you can't really justify the scientific method in a chance universe where you don't have God upholding things in a consistent way. So, um, and then can it be made compatible with biblical with the biblical narrative? No, not with no, not without doing damage to the narrative. Not if you're going to interpret the text exegetically. If you're going to let the author speak and try to get to the author's intention, you would never get millions of years of evolution. And historically, people didn't. Uh, there were some that tried to get the millions of years in even before Darwin. But uh, no, and, and, and even today, the folks who are Christians and theistic evolutionists, and I don't, I'm not denying their faith or their salvation, but they cannot read Genesis in a natural way and still believe in theistic evolution. So most of them would relegate it to poetic literature or a parable or a framework or some kind of um, parallel to... Uh, mid Near Eastern uh, origin stories and things like that. Genesis is written in the same style as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the historical books of the Bible, frequent use of the Bob consecutive, and this happened and that happened and so on. That's the way that Jews recorded history. So there's no doubt that Genesis is meant to be understood as literal historical reality. There's no doubt that Jesus took it that way in Matthew 19 when he quotes from Genesis as the historical basis for marriage. Uh, there, there's no book of the Bible that takes Genesis any, any way other than literal history, and therefore you cannot, you cannot argue that what's symbolic for Darwinian evolution or anything like that. It's not going to work. All right. All right, all right did Marcus, you had to think, did, did you already get uh, input on this, this question? I can't remember. Not on this one, but um, okay. I would say if people want to get a, a quick rundown of, of my thoughts on that, uh, they can check out the debate that I had with Michael Jones, because in the beginning part of my presentation for that, uh, I, the question was, is evolution compatible with, with the Bible or is it, Genesis, is it compatible with Genesis? And uh, what I did was simply walk through the historical construction of Genesis and compare that first uh, to the historical construction of standard evolutionary theory. Uh, whichever particular mecha mechanisms you want doesn't really matter. The storyline is still the same uh, about the formation of the earth and whatnot. And, and I agree with Jason. Uh, looking at Genesis 
um, as a historical narrative and recognizing that as its, uh, as, as its uh, genre, right, as its writing style and, and meaning, uh, then interpreting it exegetically, you're not going to be able to find a way in which this comports with um, evolutionary theories. Now, I've got a good number of friends who are theistic evolutionists, and so their, their attempt to look at this is to say that Genesis is a different type of document. It's not a historical uh, text, especially Genesis 1, but perhaps all the way up through 11, typically, is to say that this is something else. Maybe it's an ancient Near Eastern theological manifesto, in a sense, of some kind. It's a, it's a polemic against the other gods. And Genesis has those components. It has literary construction. It has parallelisms in terms of the days, but not parallelisms in the way that they're used and employed in the Psalms or the Book of Job. So it's not poetry in any sense, um, even though it is written in um, a very lofty style of narrative. For Genesis 1, it's a very, very lofty style. And we see more typical narrative starting in Genesis chapter 2. That reads every bit the same as it reads with Abram moving around and doing stuff and whatnot. The, the styles are the same. So um, as far as what is Darwinian evolution's biggest flaw, uh, when it comes to the scientific aspects of that, uh, I think evolution does have a good number of flaws to it. Um, I think that the, the idea that uh, random changes in the genome can be acted upon by selection in order to produce um, an, in an overall and over time increase in the quantity and quality of information within the genome is basically a lost cause. I don't think that that's possible, and I certainly don't think that it's possible within the time frame that even biological evolution has to play with of several billions of years on Earth. Uh, we have various... Uh, examples of what's called the waiting time problem, where it seems that there are organisms that evolve, if you assume the, the standard timeline, that evolve so quickly that the mutation rates to get them there um, are outpaced by reality. And you just, you don't have enough time to account for all the things that have to, to change in these organisms. Uh, we see that between human beings and chimpanzees, for example, and, and going back to the last common ancestor between the two of, of, of our species, should evolution be true, there seem to be too many mutations uh, for that. There seem to be too many mutations necessary to, to evolve whales from terrestrial animals uh, after the death of the dinosaurs and the like. Those sorts of problems are extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and, and I won't say that evolutionists won't come up with a solution to that. They may, um, but they continue to be persistent and difficult problems to the theory. Okay. All right. Hey, cool. Thank you so much. And we have a super chat here. Thank you, Robert Rowe, for the super chat. Appreciate it. Is Genesis 2 post-flood geographical features of, of Eden? Uh... Doctor, I guess Dr. Ross, what you, what you got, man? Yeah. Correct. Sure. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I see that. Uh, thanks, Jason. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's geography. Wait a minute, geography. But no, oh, okay. that, this is a very good question. And uh, thanks to Sentinel Apologetics. I, I know their channel. Um, and I know they weren't uh, all that pleased with me in the, in the Mike Jones debate. But nonetheless, <laughs> we can still be friends. We can still be pals. So um, Genesis 2 does contain a number of references that are challenging for young Earth creationists on this respect. Because uh, when you see the geographical statements that are made about, for example, the Tigris and the Euphrates, um, and the land of Havilah, and we don't know exactly what Havilah is, but nonetheless kind of think that it's probably one or two areas that are typically thought to be in existence that the people of Israel would have known at the time. 
which is very much post-flood, right? It mentions the Euphrates, right? And the second, it's, it's the Euphrates. Like, my, my sister is an Old Testament scholar. She teaches Greek and Hebrew and uh, does a lot of linguistic work uh, and things like that. She teaches at Liberty University. And, you know, when she said, Marcus, when they, they're saying the Euphrates, like there's just one of these things, right? <laughs> there's no other the Euphrates. So young earth creationists do have a bit of a challenge here in recognizing a pre-flood world that looks like it has post-flood geographical markers on it. The normal response for most young earth creationists, and I, I guess I'll, I'll tip my hat and say I, I think these are reasonable, uh, is that pre-flood geographical issues or, or pre-flood geographical localities and names were applied to places in the post-flood world. So to give you an example, uh, I come originally from Rhode Island and I live in Virginia. I've lived in Pennsylvania. So I've lived a good bit on the East Coast of the United States. And there's a lot of places uh, that have the same names as someplace in England because all these places were colonized by British folks, right? So I come from Rhode Island and uh, we've got town, actually we've got a town called Galilee down in, in the South. It's named after, of course, Galilee. And what's across the bay from Galilee? Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't match the, the biblical geography well at all, does it? But it, um, but it works for Rhode Island. And that's an interesting aspect as we might think about how names get ported to different places and end up being geographically peculiar. So one of the aspects of Genesis 2 is that there's a couple of rivers that nobody knows really what they are. There's been a lot of guesswork about what they are. Uh, but nobody really knows. And then there's the Tigris and Euphrates. It very well could be that as Noah's descendants came off of the ark and began to dwell in the valley of Shinar, that they had two rivers there and they called them Tigris and Euphrates. And they didn't have two other rivers to name because there weren't two other major rivers there. And so what we see in Eden is being reflected later in the post-flood world. And I think that is at least a reasonable way of reading the text. Right. Well, Dr. Lau, any thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, the, it, particularly when you think about it, the the uh, the river in Eden split into four, and that does it, you know, and one of which is the Euphrates and the Tigris, and then the Pishon and the Gihon, and um, it it doesn't do that today. The, the Euphrates doesn't do that today, so it's not the same river in that sense. Uh, and then, of course, there's the question, you know, can, can you step in the same river twice? Because, you know, they, they do change a little bit. So I don't have a problem with them naming post-flood features after pre-flood realities. There's an Eden, Australia. That's not where the garden was, not necessarily. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> All right. We have another super chat here from Mr. Mr. Rowe. Thank you once again for the support. Uh, question, why did John Calvin read birds from fish? And I guess Genesis chapter one, verse 20. You guys. Uh, well, that's the creation that? of the sea creatures and the flying creatures. Um, I'm not I'm not understanding what is common is. Why did why did John Calvin read birds from fish? Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not certain what he's asking, to be honest with you. Yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure either. The, the passage here says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Um, so I'm not sure about the fish aspect. The, the actual word here in Hebrew um, is uh, not sipor, which is bird, but of, 
which is flying creature, uh, a slightly broader term. Birds are mm -hmm. oaf, but so would be bats and, and other sorts of things here. So uh, it, it's, it's okay to translate it as bird, but actually it's, it's a little bit bigger of a category. Okay. All right. We have a question here, and this one says, uh, what would you say to someone who says, well, as long as, I, as long as we have a literal atom, I'm happy. So independent of whether I'm a old earth creationist, young earth creationist, theistic evolutionist, as long as we have a literal atom, that's all that matters to me. What would you guys say to that? Uh, Dr. Law? Well, um, what would Jesus say to that? <laughs> I mean, he, he laments that people are slow to b believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so, you know, is it enough to, well, I believe this section of scripture, I'm good. Well, uh, I think to be pleasing to God, we ought to believe all of the scriptures. Uh, we may misinterpret them at times. That's understandable. That's why God gave us the church. We're supposed to help each other and challenge each other and say, look, brother, here's how I read this passage. How do you read it? But, you know, to say, well, as long as you have these minimalistic elements, uh, you're pleasing to God. Well, we've already pointed out that the salvation is is very minimalistic because Jesus did all the work. You are saved by God's grace. You trust in Christ. You repent of your sins and trust in him. You're saved. Um, but then out of gratitude for salvation, we really ought to get our theology as right as we can, knowing that we won't get it perfect in this lifetime. But I think it's honoring to God to try and, and, and read the text and say, okay, what's it saying? And, and, and then to accept that, to believe it. Uh, so yes, literal Adam, that's certainly true. I think that's important theologically, but it's also important that his sin brought death into the world. Uh, because that's that's where we learn that death is the penalty for sin. It's reiterated in Romans and 1 Corinthians, but it starts in Genesis. And that gives us the foundation then for the gospel. I think we should believe everything that the Bible teaches and, and try to uh, try to interpret it exegetically, letting getting to the author's intention and then accepting that. All right, Dr. Marks. This is a topic that I've actually been engaged on quite a bit over the past couple of years, which is strange because I'm a paleontologist and uh, I never, you know, I'm, I'm also an introvert, so I don't care about people very much. Uh, so anthropology was never, <laughs> it was never my big, my big deal. Uh, I didn't care about human evolution or anything like that, but um, I've been pulled into the whole debate about historical Adam over the past couple of years, uh, first through the work of uh, Dr. Joshua Swamidas and his, uh, and his hypothesis that Adam was a genealogical ancestor rather than the original human being that provided that produced all human beings. I says it would be okay if Adam is just an ancestor to all of us in some way, while we also have lots of other ancestors out there. So um, I, I provided uh, my own uh, perspectives on his book in a uh, in an essay on Sapientia, uh, and then over the past year I've been involved in representing the young Earth creation perspective uh, perspective on historical Adam. Uh, for a forthcoming multiple views book by B and H, uh, featuring William Lane Craig, Kenton Sparks, and Andrew Loke, um, and yeah, you, you get an email I, like, a year ago. <laughs> I get an email from William Lane Craig, and right. like I, I met him when I was twenty, right? You know, I'm like, what are we gonna? <laughs> What's this guy to say? Um, inviting me to uh, to represent Young Earth Creation in this uh, multiple multiple views book. And what I find very fascinating about this is that, um, well, Craig, for example, was someone who held to a historical Adam back in the 90s as a fairly recent kind of old earth 
creationist perspective. Fairly recent meaning 50 to 100,000 years ago, not like a young earth creation view. Um, at this point, Craig now argues that we can have a historical atom if we put on three quarters of a million years ago um, as a member of the genus and species Homo heidelbergensis. So he says we can't have Adam as Homo sapiens. We've got to put him further back because Neanderthals look like they're human. And I agree uh, with that, actually. This is where Craig and I agree, kind of like what Jason was saying about the Hawaiian Islands. The evidence points very strongly that Neanderthals and several other quote unquote species of hominids are human and as are we. And so I think the ancestry of all of us is rooted in Adam, but I think that's recent and post flood. I think all these are post flood organisms uh, and people. Uh, whereas Craig looks at it and says, because I'm committed to an ancient age of the earth and an ancient universe, I have got to trace backward through time until I can get to the junction point of the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And I can put that, you know, 750,000 years ago. And, but when he does that, he also realizes that he loses all historicity to Genesis one, right? It, it's mm. not, you know, th there is no historical aspect to it. And he calls it mytho history. He thinks it's basically a mythological aspect that is built around some historical core, but we can't even know what that is. In fact, I think the only reason that William Lane Craig calls it, calls him Adam is because he's committed to Adam from the New Testament statements in Romans first and first Corinthians. In Genesis itself, he doesn't think that there's anything historical that compels us to an individual. It's only the New Testament that compels us to affirm a historical Adam. And so this question by Benny is a really good one. You know, can I just have a historical Adam? Is, is that just fine? Uh, you know, maybe it is for somebody. Maybe that's what they need and they can hold on to that. And I hope then build from there as to where they need to go. Uh, and I think that's towards a young earth argument. Um, but what I see here is um, not a slippery slope argument, but rather watch what happens to folks as they adopt a differing perspective from something like Young Earth. It becomes increasingly difficult now, given the evidence from gen genetics and paleoanthropology, to hold to a historical atom that is actually the progenitor of all human beings. And I think that genealogical arguments like Swamidas's, even though it's not constructed very well, um, I think the genealogical arguments for Adam's existence are going to be the the backstop for a lot of evangelicals. Um, they're going to keep working on the theological arguments and try to make them better uh, because right now they're kind of a mess. But nonetheless, I think for those who are committed to an ancient age of the earth, this might be the only way that they can hold on to a historical Adam. And it's not a very good way. It, it, it leads to some really bad theological issues where you've got parallel tracks of people of the same species some of whom are human and some of whom are not. Um, and you could have people alive today who are not human in a biblical mm -hmm. sense and who are human in a biblical sense. And that completely dissolves the gospel. It, mm. it, it's uh, talk about Darwin's universal acid. Um, that's what happens when you apply that to the question of Adam. Right, all right. So Dr. Lau, you actually wrote an article as well. This is back when I think, um, Dr. William Lane Craig's uh, released uh, his title, another title concerning uh, uh, the, I guess, Adam, right? The historical Adam. Uh, do you mind telling yeah. uh, the audience about that a little bit and what you, how you respond to some and then where people can actually find your, uh, your resource for that? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's on the website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And it was a multi-part series. There was an article that William Lane Craig had written that summarizes his book on the historical Adam. 
And I thought, well, this would be nice because it's a nice, it's a succinct article. I don't have to go through his whole book. So I, I responded to his article, which he, which he admits summarizes the position in his book. And I just analyzed the logic of it, and I found it really wanting. It's very clear that he, he, he's accepted evolution in the billions of years, but he wants to maintain Christianity. God bless him for that. But then he wants to, but in order to, to mesh those two, he has to read Genesis in a non-literal way. And so he's kind of invented his own, as uh, Dr. Ross put it uh, correctly, this mytho-historical uh, genre. And, um, and I go through the logic of that, and I find that really absurd because he's, he's equivocating on the word myth, uh, which can just mean something that's, well, it has multiple meanings in any case, but he ends up settling on myth in the sense that it doesn't actually have to happen in history. And, but then, so you have something that doesn't have to happen in history, myth, being attached to history, it's a little bit like fiction facts. It's, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it's not something that's a meaningful term, really. And I, and I take him to task on that in the article series. All right. All right. Cool. Thank you so yeah, much. I, uh, I, that. I, I read uh, a good bit of your series on that, Jason. It's very nicely done. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. All right. Yeah, it was all right. It was okay. It, 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 <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was all right. <laughs> I'm messing with you, man. It was that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was absolutely wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful, man. All right, so we have another question here, and I'm gonna. We're we're at, at almost an hour and thirty minutes, almost there. So I think we can go another thirty minutes, and then we can shut it down there. We can get as many more questions in in the next thirty minutes, and then we can sort of close it out at that point. So we have another question here from Miss Slam R N. How does your? I think we already asked this. I don't. Did we? No, I don't think we asked this. How does young Earth creation uh, geomorphically? Uh, account for the estimated 76 quadrillion tons of biomass deposits if laid down at once wouldn't that create too much energy heat uh dr marcus very good question uh so i hear uh in this question um some of the data that say uh, dr hugh ross uh would use in a debate with me uh he's challenged me with the same uh type of argument and it's a good question it's a very good question um where, where are these 70 quadrillion tons of biomass deposits? Well, in order to get that number, you take all of the coal that we have, the natural gas, uh, the petroleum, uh, but also importantly, all the limestone. So the, the rock limestone is part of the biomass deposits. And actually there's a substantial amount of, of uh, limestone. The vast majority of the limestone is not biologically um, produced. It is biochemically produced or even chemically produced. Um, and so one thing that we can think of is if we have a pre-flood world with a variety of different ecosystems, which we would expect, God created swimming things and flying things and various things on the land, there's ecosystems out there. We have very likely an original source for a large amount of our limestone, which is going to wipe down this number of 76 quadrillion tons by a massive, massive factor because this material can be remobilized during the flood and redeposited with many of the organisms inside it. So there's plenty of organisms in the limestone, just like there's plenty of organisms in say the sand at the beach. You take that, you wash it together and you form a new deposit. It's going to have sand and animals. This is gonna have limestone and animals. So I think it's a big mistake to assume as Hugh Ross does 
that all of the limestone out there was produced biologically. It simply wasn't. We know that limestone can be produced chemically, and it ignores the possibility that limestone, or at least lime muds that become limestone, uh, were formed in the pre-flood world and can be moved around and become flood-based deposits. Uh, the remainder of, uh, of that, whatever number that happens to be, uh, that's producing our natural gas and our oil, most of the natural gas and oil is produced by bacteria and by plankton, uh, particularly plankton in the ocean. It's not by dinosaurs, despite the Sinclair symbol that I love uh, up on there. I'm a big dinosaur fan. Uh, but oil doesn't come from dinosaurs. It comes from far more mundane creatures that are just plankton. Um, and during the flood, we expect that there was probably vast amounts of plankton blooms because you have all of these nutrients that are being stirred up uh, and allowing organisms to rapidly procreate. And as they get then get buried, they form the basis for things like petroleum and natural gas. The, the coal deposits, some are formed from pre-flood uh, forests uh, and potentially also some floating forests. That's one model that's been proposed by a couple of different creationists. Uh, and also some of that stuff is coming in the post-flood world. Um, what rocks are part of the flood and what rocks are after the flood is an active area of debate and research within young earth creationism. Um, and I've got my own ideas on that, but it, I think it does explain where a good portion of especially our more recent coal deposits uh, in the southeast U.S. and some of the parts of the center, center west of the U.S. come from. All right. Any thoughts, Dr. Lau? No, oh, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. All right. There was a question in here. Um, oh, there was a question in here about comments, and I want to get your input on this, Dr. Lau, but I can't seem to spot it. Oh, there it is. I found it. Uh, I don't envy your job there, Marlon. You've got to have a lot of stuff coming at you. And kudos to the, uh, to the listeners. We're getting some really great questions here. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Are comments still a good argument for Younger's creation? What do you say, Dr. Lau? I would say yes, with a caveat. This is one of those things where you have to kind of go into some of the nuances. Uh, nobody disputes that that typical comets, like we have, like Halley's Comet, they cannot last billions of years, and and that's because of their their orbits bring them close enough to the sun. Every time they every time they orbit the sun, they lose a bit of mass, uh, so they can't last more than about a hundred thousand years for a typical comet. That's not disputed. Secularists agree with that. Then the question is, is there a way to make new ones? That's the issue, see? And so my secular colleagues propose that there is an Oort cloud, which feeds into a Kuiper belt, and that and those two are sources for uh, the comets that we have in the solar system. And the thing I would point out is there really isn't any uh, solid evidence for an Oort cloud at all. Um, Kuiper belt is, that's a little more nuanced. We don't, the, the Kuiper belt that we, that you'll hear talked about is not the kind that is necessary to ge to generate um, comets, namely trillions of small comet-sized objects, rather than thousands of much larger uh, masses. So, uh, but in any case, the Oort cloud in particular, I haven't seen any good uh, observational evidence for that. So, given that there is an Oort, an Oort cloud, at least there's not evidence for one. And by the way, even if they found one, there's not a theoretical mechanism to generate it. Because the idea is that the Oort cloud is generated early in the solar system when Jupiter flings out these comet masses, and then somehow their orbits get, their orbits get circularized. But uh, you need about 10 times to 100 times more mass than Jupiter could possibly do, according to the simulations. So if they find one, it's a problem. If they don't find one, it's a problem. So that being the case, yes, I think comets are good evidence for a young solar system. All right. Any thoughts, Dr. Marcus? 
No, thanks for that clarification, Jason. It's a good one for me to put in my back pocket. And then I can point him over to the Biblical Science Institute website and say, <laughs> for further information, go see Jason. Don't right, bother me. Another... I'm <laughs> We have another question here. Uh, what do you guys make of the fact that we are able to see stars that are countless light years away? Don't young girls creation advocates, advocates have to assume on non-scientific basis that it's mere appearance of age? I'm going to take that one. That's a, that's a yep. big no. Um, oh, come on, Jason. <laughs> I need to answer that. Uh, <laughs> you can follow up. Um, first of all, you got to be careful about appearance of age. Technically, that's a reification fallacy because age doesn't have appearance. We don't see age. Now, we use that term informally when we talk with, about people. You know, he, he looks like he's a certain age. But what we really mean by that, we're, we're using it non-literally. What we really mean is he has physical features that are typical of a certain age. You can't do that with the universe because there's just the one. You can't say, you know, this universe looks, you know, when we compare all the universes of different ages that we have access to, this one looks most like the one that, you can't do that. There's just got the one. It looks the way it looks. Um, the universe was made mature in the sense that it was fully functional. That's certainly true. But I don't think that's... Um, really the answer for distant starlight. The question is, uh, how do you get the light from those galaxies to, to Earth? And I think it actually has come from those galaxies to the Earth. We do see the galaxies. I don't think God made the beams of light on their way. He has the power to do that. I just don't think he would do that in terms of what I read about his, his character in, in Scripture. Um, the, the bottom line is we don't need any new physics. We don't need anything extraordinary. The physics of Einstein answers this question. And it has to do with what are called synchrony conventions. And that is a method, either pragmatic or hypothetical, by which you could synchronize two clocks that are separated by an enormous distance. It's easy to synchronize two clocks if they're right next to each other. We've seen the spy movies. Let's all synchronize our watches, right? They read the same time at the same time. But when clocks are widely separated, there's Einstein demonstrated that there is no objective way to synchronize two clocks that everyone on the universe would agree on. In other words, if one, whatever mechanism a person uses, if one person uses that mechanism and says, yes, I judge these two clocks to be synchronized, according to Einstein, another person in the universe that is moving relative to that person will look at those same two clocks, use the same method, and say, no, they're not synchronized. That clock is five minutes ahead of that one. Okay? And so the best we can do is come up with a convention that gets a group of people to agree on it. And, and uh, there's different ways to do that. The way that most physicists do it is they assume that the speed of light is the same in all directions. If it's outward or inward, it doesn't matter. It travels at speed C, which is 186,282.397 miles per second. But uh, you don't have to assume that. You can assume that the light travels half that speed when it's going away from an observer and infinitely fast when it's coming toward an observer. You'll get the same experimental results. And this was demonstrated very conclusively by John Winnie back in the 1970s. He showed that all the physics of Einstein, or at least the special relativity, uh, does not depend on the one-way speed of light or on what we would call a synchrony convention. And so the bottom line is, if you use what's called a visual synchrony convention, or I call it an anisotropic synchrony convention, where light, when it's moving toward an observer, is infinitely fast, then that means it takes no time at all for the light to get from those distant galaxies to Earth. So, in other words, if the Bible's using that convention, and I believe it does because all ancient cultures inherently used it, they didn't have any other option until recently, then God makes the stars on day four and those distant galaxies, and their light reaches Earth on day four. So Adam didn't have to wait 
years for Alpha Centauri to blink on. The light was already there. Uh, bef actually, before Adam was created, the light was already reaching the Earth. And that's, that's kind of the one-minute explanation of a topic that's kind of complicated. So I have written some articles on the website that go into some detail on that. If you go to our website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com, click on Topics, Distant Starlight, there's a series of articles on that. And then I also wrote a book called The Physics of Einstein, which is just fun because um, that's, that's primarily the reason I wrote it. It wasn't to explain the starlight issue, although there are three chapters explaining that issue. But the primary reason I wrote it is because the physics of Einstein is just cool. And, it's, it, and it glorifies God. When you, things like black holes and time travel, truth is stranger than fiction. And this book will take you through some of that interesting uh, physics. It's written for laymen. Uh, there's in-depth boxes if you want to go into more depth, but uh, it's, a fun, it's a fun project. Bottom line is, with the physics of Einstein, as we now understand it, there is no distant starlight problem. You can get the light from those galaxies to Earth immediately using the right synchrony convention. All right. Dr. Marcus? Nothing for me here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Remember no the old adage, right? Uh, better to keep one's mouth closed and be thought a fool than to open it and leave no doubt. Leave no doubt, man. Uh, <laughs> all right, we have another question here. And this comes from a good friend of mine, Steve Christie. How you doing, buddy? All right, uh, can you address the red shifting argument that addresses the speed of light from distant stars? I guess this is another Dr. Lau uh, question here. Yeah, yeah so my red shift looks like this. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, we, you learn sort of in high school physics that that you get redshift. You learn about the Doppler effect, right? That when the car goes past you, the the pitch of the sound of its horn honking changes. It drops because the sound waves are compressed when they're moving toward you, and then they're they're stretched out when they're moving away from you. Light does the same thing. It's except light travels much faster than sound. Much faster. And so uh, you'd have to be moving at a substantial fraction of the speed of light to notice a change in the color of something. But with, with uh, instruments called spectroscopes, we can measure very precisely the, the, um, the motion of stars by measuring their Doppler shift. And, so, and one of the things we discovered is that galaxies generally tend to be moving away from each other and from us as if the entire universe is being stretched out or expanded which I think is suggested in scriptures like Isaiah 40:22, which was written thousands of years before this effect was discovered. But at, um, with regard to this question, I, I think this might be asking about an objection to, you know, can you have redshift if the light's instantaneous? And the answer is yes, you can, but the mechanism is a little different because you see, once you leave high school physics and you start learning about relativity, you learn that, that um, the motion away or the motion toward is not the only thing that's causing the red shift or the blue shift. It's also time dilation, clocks ticking at slightly different rates depending on motion. And one of the things John Winnie demonstrated in his 1970s uh, articles on uh, special relativity without one-way velocity assumptions is that the time dilation equation will give you the same answer no matter what the one-way speed of light is because the time dilation formula exactly compensates for it. It's, it's Mathematically, it's beautiful, but uh, so basically, even if the speed of light's instantaneous, you'll still have a redshift, and it'll be the same amount because clocks are ticking at a slower rate, and therefore the the electrons are slower, and so the the frequency of the light is less. So the bottom line is, you get a redshift and blue shift, and they're identical regardless of what synchrony convention you use, and and this is discussed in the book, the uh, the physics of Einstein, and the in-depth boxes even have the math, so you can check it out for yourself. 
Very good, very good. Dr. Marcus, any thoughts? Well, last year I had the privilege of going to a small creation retreat in Tennessee, and uh, the speaker at that retreat was uh, Dr. Bob Hill from um, from Bob Jones University. I'm sure Jason knows him well. Yeah, I know. And uh, Bob's, Bob's a great teacher. He's just a really, really good teacher. Uh, he teaches uh, astronomy classes there. And he was walking us through a bunch of different astronomy issues. And uh, one of them happened to be talking, of course, about um, this Doppler shift that, that occurs. And that from the spectroscopes, looking at even an individual star, we we're able to tell its rotation because of slight amounts of red and blue shift. Because as the star is rotating towards you, it slings the light at you just a little faster. And when it rotates the opposite direction, it pulls the light a little bit away as it's slinging towards you. And even that level of precision can be picked up on the spectroscopes that Jason was mentioning here. So for the audience out there wondering, as I was, as I was sitting in the audience, uh, well, audiences, you know, around a fire, basically, um, you know, listening to, to Bob Hill talk about this, he would bring us constantly up to this point, And we're all sitting there going, there's no way you can know that. I'm sorry. I just don't. And three slides later, we're all going, well, of course, this is absolutely the only possible explanation for it because of light and because of Doppler effect and because of physics, right? I mean, it was, I was really just amazed getting a chance to hang out for about a weekend listening to an astronomer walk me through. Cause, I mean, I'm a geologist and I took classes in geography and a little bit of meteorology, but I never did take an astronomy class. So I didn't get some of this stuff in high school physics and college physics were not my strong suits, hence the rocks, right? So, you know, so getting a chance as, as an adult to listen to those, for those who are, are you know, listening to Jason and thinking, I don't know if he really, no, yeah, when astronomers, we've learned to, dis, to say at my house that when astronomers say they know something, generally speaking, yeah, just go with that. Just go with that. They, they got a good handle on what's going on. Unless it's about what happened billions of years ago, and then that's all speculation. Well, you know, there's a caveat, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, it is true. We can tell the rotation of a star because some of the light's blue shift and some of the light's red shift, and so it spreads out those spectral lines. What's even, yeah. what's even more amazing, there's some planets that cross in front of their star, and we can tell yeah. what direction they're orbiting. Because when they, when they, when they, if they're orbiting in the same direction of the star, they, they block a little bit of the blue shifted light first, and then mm. they block a bit of the red shifted light. And so the spectrum changes very slightly, and we can detect that. And that's how we know that some planets orbit their star backwards, amazingly. Yeah. It's amazing. And that we can, when, when there's a report that comes out saying that we know what the atmospheric composition of, an, of some exoplanet is, and I'm sitting there going, you can't know that. Like, seriously, this yeah. is, you know, it. millions of light years away. And sure enough, as the light passes through the atmosphere of that planet, it picks up the spectral signature of yeah. the elements that are in the atmosphere. And shows that, and then you don't see that when when the planet then passes away, and you only get the light from the star. So like, yeah. whoa, <laughs> my my mind was totally blown. It was awesome, and uh, I still don't own a telescope, but you know, uh, I'll at least take a look at one and let somebody tell me about what's going on. So like, it still have the app. They're looking at the stars, you know, like that. So that's cool. <laughs> really good stuff. Excellent, excellent. All right. So, so... I, I think actually, Martin, if I can just jump in. It's one of the things that mm -hmm. I think. I hope that your audience can sense from Jason and I is that both of us really love science. 
a lot. I can tell. Uh, I can. It, I can. It, I can sort of. When you guys, I'm like, I'm just letting. You, I'm just sitting back and letting you guys converse <laughs> about this, and I can see you guys lighting up about this. Yeah, stuff. we're I'm just like, we're geeking out. We're geeking out. Yeah, here. I see. <laughs> Yeah, super yep. geek out. I'm over here like, uh, my and brain We, we haven't even started on sci-fi yet or anything. But, right. you know, with, with that, <laughs> I think, you know, both of us recognize that what we get to do as scientists um, is to explore the world that God made, right? And And we have new tools that come up. And whether those tools were invented by a creationist or an evolutionist doesn't matter to me. And whether a new fossil is discovered by a creationist or an evolutionist doesn't matter to me. You know, sometimes people get really worried, like, oh, what about this new transitional fossil? What do you do with that as a young earth creationist? They get all kind of worried. You know, well, don't let that be the thing that shakes your faith. The first thing that you should say is somebody discovered something new. Cool. What is it? Right. Mm -hmm. That should be our our response. Um, my good friend Todd Wood has got a, a Bible verse on the top of his website for uh, Todd's blog, and it's it's from the Proverbs. It says, "It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, uh, and sorry, it is the joy of the Lord to conceal a matter, and it is the glory of kings to search it out." Mm -hmm. And you know, yeah, that should be the way that we as Christians, regardless if we're young Earth creationists or old Earth creationists, theistic evolution, but just the way that Christians should look at science is, we get to be the kings and queens of creation. That was our job from the very beginning. We were supposed to be the managers of this whole place. We were the stewards. The steward doesn't own the, the castle. The steward is the person who runs the affairs of the king. Mm. And we fell down on that job, right? Adam and Eve fell down on that job. And we, as I said before, we're living in the wake of that decision. But when Jesus came and lived amongst us, right? He put on flesh, he dwelt among us. That was when the king the real owner of the world came in and showed us what it's like to run things the way they ought to be. And mm. so we have a picture of Jesus Christ that we can look to. And in the meantime, if, if we can do that, if we can do that in the meantime, then we can look at this world with the awe and the wonder and the reverence that we ought to, knowing that it is the handiwork of Almighty God. Dr. Uh, Dr. Marcus over here preaching. <laughs> uh, go ahead, do your thing. <laughs> Good stuff, Dr. Marcus. And I get an amen. Yeah, amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Uh, let me see here. We got a couple more questions here. Uh, time is ticking here. Uh, where are we at? Oh, here it is. All right. So this is probably a question for you, Dr. Marcus, but I'm sure Dr. Jason and I will be able to jump into this one. Does oil contain pre-flood human remains? What, what do you What do you think, Dr. Marcus? Ugh, what a terrible thought. Um, but um, the likelihood is very, very low. Uh, as I said, the, the oil that we have is mostly produced by uh, the breakdown of plankton that are buried within lots and lots of sediment. You know, is it possible that there was a person down there? Uh, yes, I, I suppose that's possible, uh, but fairly unlikely given that uh, the human population was probably not in excessively large. Um, I think this is another area that young earth creationists have been uh, sometimes a little um, uh, uh, non-rigorous about. And they, they've taken, for example, the, the typical growth rate of the human population over the last few centuries and thought, oh, that can apply back to the beginning. No, no, it really can't. You don't have modern medicine. You, you have high levels of violence that are talked about in the Bible and things like that. I don't know how large the human population was at the time of the earth. We know that man had spread over the earth to some extent, and we know that God's 
assessment of humanity um, is quite theologically um, accurate here. It's a damning assessment of humanity, right? That all the thoughts of men are only evil continuously. Um, with that as the backdrop, I don't think that the human population was uh, something that was probably measured in millions, for heaven's sake. Uh, it's only been a few thousands of years from creation to the flood. Uh, yes, people are living longer and having more children than, than they do right now. Uh, but at the same time, I don't see how we're going to end up with, you know, tens, tens or hundreds of millions of people in such a short period of time uh, without the aid of the types of technological and fuel resources that we have today. And those fuel resources come from the flood, that, that biomass, getting back to this question of, of oil, natural gas, coal. These are the sorts of things we are piggybacking our society off of the, the energy that's locked away from flood-based ecosystems or, or from pre-flood ecosystems. Because the idea is that when the flood happened, it was just a rapid succession of soils and sediment covering over and over and the compression and the heat that's generated is what we have. That's how we're getting, that's how we got the fossil fuels that we have today. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely, Marlon. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We have coal because plants are being compressed in between layers of sand and mud, and those become sandstone and shale, and the compressed plants become coal. And uh, okay. the fossil oil is coming from those plankton that are being broken down under high temperatures. You need a certain temperature to reach. We call it the oil window in geology um, of, of temperatures that basically are about 90 degrees Celsius, uh, so just under the boiling temperature of water up to about 160, 150 degrees Celsius, somewhere in that range is when oil gets produced. Beyond that, you get only natural gas. And if you get way, way too hot, uh, then you end up forming graphite uh, out of the stuff. So, um, so yeah, it, it's uh, rapid burial of pre-flood materials and some post-flood materials in the post-flood world as well that are getting us all these, all these fuels. All right, uh, Dr. Lau, any thoughts? I'm just glad I'm not filling up my car with Uncle Fred. <laughs> I'm happy to right. fill Actually, up. Actually, it would have been a biblical name, so it would have been like Fredizak. You know, uh, <laughs> no, Fredizak. There we go. That's... With Petro, Fredizak. All right. There it is. <laughs> All right. We have a question here from Humble Clay. Thank you for the question. Why is it that people think 6,000 or 6, 8, 10,000 years is young? Why is it? Dr. Lyle, what do you think? It's only in contrast to the billions of years. Obviously, the Earth is old, thousands of years old, probably in excess of 6,000 years old. I don't even know a human being that's even 1,000 years old. So, I mean, it is old. And so that's why I'm not bothered. You know, there's certain texts in Scripture that talk about the age-old hills and so on. Well, yeah, they are old. It's only in contrast to the uh, secular view of billions of years that we could possibly think of 6,000 years as young. It's just a contrast issue. All right. Dr. Ross? Yeah, we, if you look back historically, you will not ever find the word young earth creation used until really the 20th century um, because there was no comparative referent for it. Uh, everybody thought that the earth was fairly young until geologists started making arguments uh, in the 1700s, especially. You saw others dinkering around the edges, but they typically were outside of the Christian mainstream and, and the, the sociological mainstream. Uh, but really, by the late 1700s, you're seeing a concerted argument that the earth might be hundreds of thousands of years old. 
Uh, by the 1800s, people were talking about millions and possibly, you know, into the 20th century, we get billions of years. So it is only in in reference, um, you know, just like Jason was saying with with uh, starlight, right? Or with the, the universe, you know, what is it? How old does it look? Well, we have one. So we only compare ages with other things. So if you look back at the church fathers and their writings about Genesis and, and some of the writings are good and some of the writings are not very good. There's there's a, a lot of mix there, just like you would have any 10 pastors. Some of them are going to be all right. Some of them are not. These are just the early guys. Um, but it's amazing that you know none of them really questioned the youthfulness of the earth, even Origen, uh, who had the most divergent perspective on Genesis of all the, the early church fathers. Uh, he wrote very specifically saying, and I quote, the earth is not yet 10,000 years old. He was writing against the, the Greek perspective that the earth was eternal and that matter was ever existing. And, and even Origen, who eventually is convicted of heresy, right? Even he is saying, no, it's not even 10,000 years old yet. Um, and we're not sure how old he actually thought it was because the not yet doesn't really bracket it aside from, well, it's not even that old. Um, so he might have thought that each day of creation was a thousand years. If that's the case, then that's about 10,000 from where he was. Um, but if not, if he didn't think that, then, you know, most of them in the early church were using the Septuagint. They th thought that the earth was somewhere around, you know, 5,000 years old, uh, 5,000 B.C., uh, was about the time of creation, give or take. All right. Uh, any any other thoughts, Dr. Lau? Um, no, other than, yeah, even even folks like Augustine, who sometimes allegorized sections of Genesis, I can find quotes of him saying it's, you know, less than, he says less than 6,000 because he's using the Septuagint. So that, that gives you an extra 1,500 years, something like that. All right, all right. Yeah. Yeah, we have another question here. Uh, can you explain the evolutionary dating contradictions, which are still taught as scientific law in institutions of higher learning, as well as public grade school? Dr. Lau? Uh, well, the, the main one, I think, would be radiometric dating. I think that's probably what they're asking about. A lot of people have the misconception that carbon dating gives millions of years. It never does. But there are these other methods that secularists rely upon to... Um, to corroborate, they already had the idea of millions of years before radiometric dating was ever implemented. But that it's one of the very few processes that give answers that they like, honestly. There are other methods that have been used and discarded, but radiometric dating, one of the reasons that they like it so much is because they used to argue that radioactive decay rates cannot be changed, they can't be accelerated. Well, we now know that's false. That we, there are certain kinds of radioactive decay we've been able to speed up in a laboratory by a factor of a billion like the um, the rhenium uh, osmium reaction, we can speed it up by a factor of a billion just by ionizing the the uh, atoms. So it's not it's it doesn't give it doesn't always give the same answer. That's another thing too. John Woodmore happy did a neat study where he he looked at published data and showed that they are that there are published dates that are outside of each other's error bars, which means uh, the, the they're not giving consistent results. The ones that give answers that they like tend to be published. The ones, if you get an answer, you think, well, that can't be right. You don't publish it. And by the way, uh, there, there's no implied dishonesty there. It's just it's just human nature. If, if we get an answer we like, we're less critical of it <laughs> than if we get an answer that we don't like, right? If we, well, that can't be right. Then you go back and you double check and eventually maybe you find a mistake. You don't tend to find mistakes and things if they give you answers that are consistent with what you'd expect. That's human nature. Um, but then the rate research project, too, they did some interesting studies where they looked at, um, again, the different dates that have been published for these things. 
And the, the bottom line is all these radiometric dating methods are based on certain assumptions. And I don't want to get into too, too many techie details, but there's, a, there's at least three primary assumptions that they all rely upon. Secularists are aware of these. There's a method they use called the isochron method where they try to get around at least two of these assumptions, but it doesn't affect, it's, that, that method will not solve the problem of what if the decay rate's different in the past. And we think there's evidence of that. So um, they're still taught because they're one of the few methods that give an answer that's consistent with what evolutionists require for evolution to sound plausible. All right. Uh, Dr. Marks? Yeah, the, the radioactive dating methods is something that I, I had to grapple with quite a bit in grad school because uh, certainly my, my uh, program advisors weren't going to graduate a PhD in uh, geology or paleontology if they felt that they didn't understand radioactive dating, right? <laughs> they knew I was a young earth creationist. So I got grilled on this one uh, quite a bit, both in my master's and my PhD work. Um, I had to learn how to produce the graphs, interpret uh, the, the graphs, when do you know whether or not you've got a, uh, a contaminated sample or not, uh, using different methods and things like that. And uh, I'll say this, uh, radioactive dating methods um, are still quite challenging for young earth creationists. I think that Jason's right, we have uh, some good avenues of research that have been done and more work needs to be done on them in order to, to check our own work, right, to make sure that we're not falling into the same trap of not being critical about the things that seem to comport with what we think yeah. uh, about this. Um, and so when I would teach about this in my classes and, and usually just in introductory classes, but tell my students, yeah, these are powerful arguments for an ancient age of the earth. Uh, they are not, um, they're not something that's inscalable, right? I think that young earth creationists have uh, ways to address these. Um, and there are additional ones uh, besides the, um, besides the radioactive dating methods uh, mentioned here that also pose us some challenges, uh, especially a number of different cave dating methods uh, that involve, uh, oh, uh, looking at uh, what happens to the, to the orientation of electrons within an atom when it's been exposed to sunlight for a long time. They tend to uh, pick up the same sort of orientation. And then when they're buried, they start to decay a little bit and become a little bit more chaotic. That's something that uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling has looked at very briefly, but he's, uh, he's written a little bit about that in Answers Research Journal. So we've got some folks that have been looking at these things, but we could use a lot more bright minds uh, to go through and do the rigorous thing of going through difficult programs like Jason went through, uh, like I went through, and and let your love of your discipline uh, and your love of God, you know, work into those difficult areas. And uh, God will be faithful. Uh, he always is. And uh, surround yourself uh, with the best and the brightest of the people that you can. Work under the, the sharpest ones that you can find. Um, but remember your faith community um, with local church, but also remember the faith community of others who are like-minded, who can help you when you run into your you know, invariably, you're going to run into struggles. I know I ran into struggles along the way, not knowing how to interpret and understand certain data. I'm sure Jason ran into times when he was, you know, highly challenged with what do I do with this question in astronomy? I'm not sure. And being able to say, I don't know, is okay. And to table the things that are so difficult that you just don't know a way around it and work on something that you can. And, you know, maybe you'll get back to that other issue. Maybe you won't, maybe somebody else. You, you can be patient that God is going to raise up the people that he wants to uh, along with that. And your job is to be faithful where you are with what you can. 
All right, all right. Thank you so much for that well-rounded response. And here, this question right here seems to be poking some sonic sarcasm, but I do think it um, it, it goes into the question of uh, when we when younger creationists, scientists, should I say, in particular, who are younger creationists, get accused of not being real science. Uh, the, the, whatever the younger creationists do, it's not real science. It's a pseudoscience, you know? So I've seen this accusation out there. So I did want to allow two scientists to sort of respond to this, uh, to this accusation. Uh, Dr. Lyle, what are, your, what, what are your thoughts on that? That's that- uh, Well, the idea that, that, yeah, that we're not doing real science, that's a classic no true Scotsman fallacy. That's all it is. It's, it's, it may have rhetorical value, it may be persuasive, but the fact is we're using the scientific method. Uh, we're, we're making, you know, we're making hypotheses, we're testing them and so on. Uh, take a look at the predictions I made for the James Webb Space Telescope. That was a prediction based on my model, my understanding of the cosmos. And uh, I made predictions and they were right. My model is at least tentatively, it's confirmed. It doesn't prove it, but it's, it's consistent with the data. The secular predictions are not consistent with the data. Now, if, you, if you're just following the scientific method you know, straight out, you think, well, they ought to reject their model. They don't. That's because it's, it's a little more complicated than that. And it's okay to say, well, we need to revise our model. And I understand that. But um, the scientific method came, you do understand the scientific method came out of Christian thinking. The idea that um, you know, if we're not very careful, we can, we can deceive ourselves. There's this, there's, this, there's this psychology of confirmation bias where you tend to ask questions that um, that will give you a positive answer that will affirm your model rather than falsifying your model, right? Because we have that tendency to deceive ourselves. That's a biblical principle, and so the that's why a lot of the great Christian thinkers, a lot, well, a lot of the great scientists were Christians on that basis. So, uh, as far as I can tell, we embrace every field of science. We reject some of the conclusions that secularists make because we reject the presuppositions that they carry with them, presuppositions that I would argue are contrary to the scientific method, because if you if you embrace the idea that the universe is not upheld by the mind of God, that we're not made in God's image, that God did not design our senses, then you suddenly um, have very difficult time explaining how we can justify our confidence in the scientific method to be able to find patterns in nature and, and using our senses and our mind to discover those patterns. So uh, we embrace all the branches of science. We deny speculations. Uh, on what allegedly happened billions of years ago by people who were not there, we embrace recorded history, namely the history that's recorded in God's word. All right, Dr. Marcus. So uh, is there a field of science that young earth creationism does not dispute or deny? Well, like Jason said, we don't deny any, first off, any field of science, we don't dispute fields of science. I don't dispute biology. I don't dispute geology as a discipline, as a science. Are there aspects of biology and, uh, and current hypotheses within biology and geology that I do dispute? Of course. And so does every other scientist on the planet. There's no scientist out there who agrees with every tenant of every discipline because there are multiple contradictory tenets that are presented because we've got biologists who have different perspectives on how evolution operates, for example. So they might agree that evolution happened, they believe, right? grand evolutionary argument, but they have vastly different understandings of why or how those things occur. And would you say that somebody who's disagreeing with, uh, say, uh, Stephen Jay Gould's conception of evolutionary theory, Richard Dawkins, for example, and Gould, they have very different conceptions of evolutionary theory. Is, is Dawkins um, denying 
evolutionary biology because he disagrees with Stephen Jay Gould, that would be an absurd thing to say, right? So in the same sense, we have to allow scientists the freedom to be able to affirm the things that they think are correct and to challenge the things that they think are dis uh, that are incorrect. And for young earth creationists, there are more things that we end up disagreeing with, with our secular colleagues, or as I just talk about them, my, my conventional colleagues in geology or what have you. Yeah, there's more things that I disagree with them about, and they might think I'm a crank and I'm a, I'm a kook. That's, you know, they're within their rights to do that. And that's okay. I'm, uh, I'm a big enough guy. I can handle that. That's all right. Um, and so we don't deny science. We disagree with certain scientific models and hypotheses. And the best in creation are the ones who are not going to simply disagree, but are going to present something else in its place. Something that follows along with ideas of testability, falsifiability of rigor, etc. right? You don't have to, ha nothing is ever completely falsifiable. We've learned that in philosophy of science, but nonetheless, we want to put out things that are risky. And if you see other young earth creationists that are putting out risky predictions like Jason has, uh, and said, this is what I expect. These are the data. It comports with my theory. My, my theory, my concept here, my hypothesis has been confirmed by these data. Does that mean it's correct? No, we're going to be careful about this because a mere confirmation doesn't mean that we're entirely correct. But it does, it, it should, to, uh, to the person who's careful about things, make them look at what he says and said, hmm, so why was his idea correct when this other one wasn't? And that leads to investigation. And that's good stuff. All right, all right. And we'll have two more questions, and then we'll be done. Uh, this was a super chat from Benny. Thank you, uh, Benny, for supporting the ministry. Noah's freshly plucked olive leaf. How do we reconcile an olive tree that seems to be still alive, given the catastrophic nature of the flood? Uh, Dr. Ross? Hey, that's a Take great question, from Benny. <laughs> and uh, glad he just got you a Starbucks for asking it. So that's good. Um, <laughs> So the olive branch, uh, the, the freshly plucked olive leaf is not coming from a tree that was alive prior to the flood. One of the cool things about olives uh, as a tree actually is that they can propagate from sticks. Basically, if you've got a stick that is still somewhat alive, think Princess Bride, right? <laughs> still mostly dead, but still somewhat alive. That stick, if it is uh, put in the proper circumstances, will start to generate roots and will grow into a tree. It doesn't need to go to seed. So what you've got is the flood happens, and then as the flood waters gradually begin to recede, there's this stick of olives that has been rafted out there, and it's up on, on a hill or something like that. It's lodged, and it has found a home with a little bit of mud that's starting to dry out. It's, it's going to start to propagate, and it starts to grow. And it's months later that as the dove is released, that it plucks this leaf. So the olive branch is an interesting indicator that uh, certainly that the world is healing. The waters are going down, the raven's been let out, now the dove's coming back and it's got this, this leaf in it. And it's from a tree that is a new growth. And that is really um, one of the whole aspects of what Genesis chapter 8 is about. It's about the rebirth, actually not the rebirth, it's the recreation of the world. And uh, a fun thing for your, your viewers to do, and, and you two guys, if you haven't done it before, is read Genesis chapter 1, and then immediately read Genesis chapter 8. 
and you will see that the order and the sequence of events in Genesis chapter 8 mirrors chapter 1 almost precisely. Mm. It's really pretty amazing as you see that the world that was covered with water and was a formless void like it was at the beginning of creation emerges back in a recreative way in which the waters are shut down, there's a firmament that's reestablished, the mountains rise just like they do in Genesis uh, day three and so on and so forth to the point where birds are released and then on uh, the final aspect, all the people uh, and the animals come out just like day six that has land animals and people. It's astonishing what the writer of Genesis is doing to help us understand the worldwide aspect of the flood. You cannot understand the flood unless you understand Genesis 1, especially, but also 2, 3, and 4. All of that is baked into the construction of the story of Noah's flood, letting us know that the whole world has to completely be undone and started over from scratch again. All right, all right. Good job. Good stuff. Good stuff. Dr. Lau, any thoughts? No, it's a good answer. All right. And here is the final question of the night coming from Dylan. Uh, Jason Lau, coming in late, so I apologize if this has already been covered. What are one or two of the main reasons people reject uh, young earth creation? I, I think it's because they've been, they've been intimidated to believe that science proves billions of years and or evolution. It's, it's, it's an intimidation thing. Um, I, I mean, there, there are some people who would, who are, committed to an atheistic way of thinking and therefore they have to accept millions of years in order for evolution to even sound plausible, although I would argue it isn't anyway. But um, I think the vast majority of people though, they've gone to a public education system which has taught them a secular worldview and they've taught them the secular origin story that goes along with that worldview, the millions of years of evolution. They just get intimidated. They, and they're, they're presented with evidence that you know if, if, you, if you don't hear the other side, if it's presented along with the story well, it sounds convincing. You can line up fossils and then you can tell a nice story there, but it is a story and it's it's intimidation. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. And so we, we, we gotta be careful about that. We gotta be careful about being intimidated by um, very bright people. And I don't deny there are brilliant scientists who believe in evolution, that's not the issue. Uh, but but we we get intimidated very easily and so we we tend to want to, as even as Christians, we tend to want to say, well, this is what scientists know about the universe, and so let's interpret the Bible accordingly. We gotta be real careful about that. Uh, we, should, we should let the Bible speak on its own terms and use that as a filter then to judge uh, what's being taught by us, uh, taught to us by um, even very brilliant people who maybe have some presupposition, presuppositions that have affected their interpretation of the data in a negative way. But I think the main issue is intimidation. All right, Dr. Ross. I think it's it's very easy to be um, convinced uh, in the current setup that uh, evolution has got to be uh, what's correct. Um, it is the it it carries with it the force and the power of uh, the majority of the scientific establishment, and and that says something to it, right? There there's there's reasons why people think that evolution uh, and an ancient age of the Earth and universe. Uh, are compelling. And uh, as a young earth creationist who disagrees with those positions, I want to take sometimes perhaps a rather humble attitude in that, knowing that I'm coming in from a minority position um, on this. Um, nonetheless, 
when you don't get the chance to hear op, uh, opposing concepts. I went to public school. Um, I'm a proud hum public school kid, K through PhD in state schools all the way. And um, I never heard anything that challenged evolution. I never heard anything that challenged an ancient age of the earth. All of that was something that I had to find out on my own. Um, mm -hmm. And it's often referred to as a religious position, which likewise is a way of downplaying uh, and minimizing any evidential claims that one might have. So, you know, Jason and I have talked a good bit about science and the data here today. And if you say, well, that's only because you're religious. Well, what about the data, right? What about the actual information that we're talking about here? And so without getting to hear that, um, you know, there's, there's a good proverb, right? The first two uh, who has the chance to present his case seems right until another comes forward and challenges him. So if you never get the one who comes forward to challenge, then you're going to have this default position. Um, and it's going to be the same thing that you see on the Discovery Channel, National Geographic on Disney+, Plus, every museum that you go to. And again, I, I think uh, we have to be humble in our approach because we find ourselves in a minority position. This was not always the case, but it is now. Um, and, I, and I hope that uh, we get a better opportunity in the future to present our ideas. And I, I thank you, Marlon, for giving us uh, a chance to do that this evening. Ah, no problem. I thank you guys as well. I know you guys are busy individuals and time is definitely important to you guys. So I definitely thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me on this episode. And uh, before I let you guys go, I do want to allow you guys time to sort of let people know where they can find your, your content, your information, your articles and things like that. So they can come check and read what you guys have out there. Also, point to where some of your books are sold as well. Um, if you guys have a particular independent website that you'd rather send people to versus Amazon or anything like that. Dr. Lau? Uh, yeah, so the website's uh, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Just one word, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Get their, our resources there. We have a web store. You can get the uh, the books, uh, the DVDs there. The books are also on Amazon, but uh, it does help us out a little bit more if you get them on our website. And uh, a lot, of, lot of a lot of cool resources on that website. So do check us out. The website itself is free, of course. So uh, a lot of good articles on there. Had a guest article by uh, Andrew Snelling here recently, and uh, just kind of giving introduction to the floods. So. Uh, uh, a lot of good stuff there. So biblicalscienceinstitute.com. If you go to the lower left, you'll see live events that I'm doing. I, I travel throughout the United States, uh, sometimes Canada. Uh, I don't do overseas stuff. but um, And you, you, you get all that information on the lower left where I'm going to be and, and what I'm going to be speaking on and so on. So uh, check us out. Thanks. All right. Dr. Marcus? Well, uh, I am a shameless businessman now. I used to be an academic for a long time and, you know, wasn't in the whole corporate America thing. And now I own a, a small company called Cornerstone Educational Supply. You can find us on the web at cornerstone-edsupply.com. And uh, my wife likes to say we're the stuff people. So when, you're, uh, when your homeschool curriculum or your uh, private school, you know, uh, science supply closet is looking a little low and you need stuff, we're the stuff people. We can get you the stuff, whether you're looking for biology supplies, uh, physics and chemistry materials. We provide all of those. Uh, we have a specialization in, you guessed it, geology kits. We make all of our geology kits. I uh, design all of them. And uh, we've got about 12 tons worth of rocks, minerals. And actually, no, we got a few more, probably up to about 16 tons of rocks, minerals, and fossil materials in our warehouse uh, that we bust down, <laughs> down to size and make little and 
make specimen numbers for it. And uh, so we do a lot of stuff. If you are in classical conversations, uh, we make specialized uh, supply kits for their homeschool co-ops. Uh, we also make supplies for master books and uh, Berean builders and a few other uh, homeschool supply uh, or homeschool curricula. And uh, if you're looking for something that you want to accompany with a book, you want uh, Jason, hey, if you're looking for some supplies to bundle in for a, a brand new homeschool, you know, or a private school uh, curriculum you're developing, we make customized curriculum material. So that's what we do at Cornerstone Educational Supply. We're the stuff folks. All right, man. That's that's not like a great commercial promotion, man. Good stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I homeschool my kids, Dr. Barker, so I may actually be in contact with you to uh, get Absolutely. some information for you, man. Hey, we'll so. get you Hey, thank you, Marlon. All right, no doubt, no doubt. All right, cool. All right, guys, I'm gonna let you guys go, man. I love you guys. You guys be blessed, and I really enjoyed you. And perhaps sometime in the future, because I ain't gonna bug you guys in no near future, definitely not. But perhaps sometime in the future, we can do this again at some point, man. But I thank you guys for coming on this episode, and I look forward to you guys to what you guys are doing uh, uh, out there, man. Continue to do work. I'm praying for you guys. Continue to work for the Lord and for His kingdom. All right. Thanks, Marlon. God bless you. And blessings right. to you. Thanks. Good seeing you, Marcus. Take care. You too, Jason. All right. God bless. All right. Another great show in the books, guys. And this is, once again, this is one of those shows where you just enjoy it, man. And uh, I pointed out earlier, right, that Dr. Jason Lau and Dr. Marcus Ross, as they're talking about the science stuff, right, you could just see their face lighting up because they enjoy it. They really enjoy it so much. And it's, it's not simply because of science. Um, I think Dr. Marcus Ross pointed out, it's because they're able to investigate the Lord's creation, right? They're able to dive into what the Lord has made. And we shall all be so thankful right for this opportunity though we you know speaking to myself yo me we and many of you in the live chat may not have a doctorate or phd in a particular field of study uh, god has given us the ability to discern and the ability to investigate the ability to uh build our own hypothesis about certain things right and to be able to investigate god's creation god's design and so we shouldn't take these things for granted right you guys out there in the live chat are asking very important questions and that's why i wanted to make this a question for you guys a show for you guys out there to be able to ask these type of questions because these are important questions and it helps you in your investigation right in your studies and your way you interact with the evidence that is out there and so uh i am deeply thankful i have so much gratitude for guys that are out there doing tremendous work like dr jason lau and dr marcus ross who are out there doing an amazing job at helping those who may hold to the young earth creation position uh, be able to sift through the things that we see, the things that we see out there, right? And I also thank for those, for Dr. Marcus Raw and Dr. Jason Law because they're able to help the young, the, the older creationists or the theistic evolutionists out there who may have some questions as well. Uh, and another, a, a thing that I also want to address also and I think Dr. Jason Lau or Marcus, Dr. Marcus Hall addressed it, is that as we are interacting with those who may be on the other side of the aisle, uh, we wanna be careful as to not kick these guys out of the kingdom, right? You say, well, you're an old earth creationist, so you're not a believer, get out of here, you heretic. We don't wanna have that approach. 
though there are older creationists or theistic evolutionists who do have heretical positions right they do some of them do may have an heretical position that is not associated with old earth creation they may believe in some off the wall stuff that rejects the deity of christ right those obviously are heretical positions when you start rejecting the deity of christ but if someone has an older creation position uh i do not believe personally that is a way that is that is enough room to say well you're not a believer get out of here right so we want to be extremely careful uh as to not do that and and, and treat people as if they are not believers uh, un unnecessarily all right uh and uh so i thank you guys uh for coming on the gospel truth and i pray that this show was definitely a blessing for you uh because it certainly was for me and uh i don't know if you guys can tell but there was a little little fluid drizzling out of my ears and that's because my head the pressure in my head the the, the fluid that surrounds my brain was compressed because i couldn't take all the information <laughs> So some of that fluid was draining out of my ears but nonetheless it was an awesome show an amazing show and i really appreciate these guys and so once again go out there and uh check these guys out man don't hesitate go out there check out the content so you guys can be up on speed of what's going on and i want you guys to make sure you check out the content of gospel truth too don't leave this channel without subscribing and hitting that notification bell first because you don't want to stay you don't miss anything right you don't want to miss anything that are coming up here on the gospel truth stay in the loop not out of the loop stay in the loop all right all right i'm gonna let you guys go may god bless you and may god keep you